Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 37. This is the long-awaited AeroV assembly and operational tips. The AeroV engine is a great affordable engine option for your Sonics project. The AeroV is a kit engine and requires the builder to assemble it. So Sonics provides an assembly manual and an assembly video that walk the builder through the assembly process, but there are areas that sometimes are overlooked or done incorrectly or are simply just underappreciated by a first-time builder. We'll discuss these areas with several experienced AeroV engine builders and pilots, and we'll present some tools and tips to ensure that your engine is built right the first time and performs reliably for years to come. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonics 1374. Joining me today is Gary Motley. John Gillis is off this episode, and we've got a couple of guests. Gary is builder of Hound Dog, an AeroV-powered tail dragger Sonics. He's a longtime pilot, a former CFI, and a multi-time airplane builder. Gary had over 600 hours on his AeroV when it went to its new owner, and at that time, it was running great. So, Gary, how's it going? Oh, doing pretty well, doing well, just not flying as much as I'd like. That's probably the same for all of us. How's the knee feeling? Uh, the knee is getting better. I'm now walking around without the knee brace or the cane this week. I've got about 90 degrees of flexion. Uh, but still considerably weak. It, it's really difficult to try to actually step up with the left leg. But I'm working on it. Well, little by little, right? That's that's how you get better. Yeah, it's just a day-by-day process. It tells me when I can start to do more with it kind of automatically. So I'm just following the lead of my leg. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you're making progress. So we've got three guests tonight. We've got three very experienced AeroV builders for the topic. First up, we have Mike Smith, we have Bob Micah from Kansas City, and Carl Benda from Colorado Springs. So Mike Smith built Sonics 439. He built it from plans, and that's an AeroV-powered tail dragger. Mike's a longtime aviation enthusiast, a skydiver with over 2,500 jumps, a 600-hour instrument-rated private pilot, and over the past four years has put over 400 hours on his AeroV, and had a few uh, a few occasions to get into it and do some work on it as well. So, Mike, how's your engine running now? Running really well at the moment, but I guess three's a charm. I've built three engines, not because I built three separate engines, but because I've built my engine three times. So that that's what makes me experienced at this point. The engine's running great. Um, I really find that I don't have to do a lot to it these days. Oh, that's good. Interesting. My my first build, I was so nervous um, about getting something wrong that it took me two months to build it, and and I was not having a lot of fun because I was just afraid I was going to do something wrong. But uh, then I built it a second time because I had the issue with the Nicosil cylinders, and had to replace those with the uh, the cast iron cylinders, and that took me a couple of weeks to to rebuild the engine. And then uh, two years ago, I had a prop strike out on Nantucket Island, and uh, had to uh, take the engine off the airplane, put it in the uh, station wagon, bring it home, rebuild it, bring it back. I tore it apart in two nights, and I rebuilt it in two nights. So, it, it you know, I went from two months to two nights. 
to build the engine. So once you know what you're doing, it's 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 a pretty simple engine. It's a pretty easy thing to to build. Right, and you kind of have a feel for what's important and what you really have to focus on. And there's a whole lot of stuff that very quickly becomes second nature. Yeah, definitely. And and I just want to make sure this is this is real clear up front. Mike, I think your experience is probably kind of similar to others out there. There's a variety of things that pop up that cause you to have to get into your engine and do some work on it. And the fact that you've had to do that is not necessarily a black mark on the AeroV itself. It's just one of those things that as an experimental engine builder that sometimes we have to do that. And so like your prop strike, that's no fault of the engine. The Nicosil cylinders, it's a little bit different story. But um, there's a variety of reasons that people have to get into their engines, and we'll delve into that a little bit later here. Yep. All right. Well, next up, Bob Micah. Bob is builder of Sonics 178, better known as Katie. That's a plans-built Aerov tail dragger. Bob's an early plans builder, and he built his plane the hard way when there weren't many parts yet available. So Bob flies from Kansas City and has made numerous cross-country trips, and you have, a, I think you said, about 350 hours. Is that right? That's correct. Well, it's close to 360 now. It's uh, it's it's flying really good. Um, I've had you know my issues when I bought my engine. It was called an Aero V 2180 engine kit, and uh, it was the 49 uh, 4950 cost. Um, I was one of the uh, few people that bought the 20 amp alternator before it was standard. When I built built up my engine first. The secondary ignition wasn't uh, uh, offered, so I had to take the heads off and have those shipped back. The upgrade for the flywheel, the upgrade for the valve uh, lifters, all of that came before I started my engine. So I had the heads off, you know, and, and was fooling around with it. It only took us, two guys, 15 hours to put the engine together initially, and that includes the, uh, we, we built up our own crank. Uh, I had a friend that has an auto shop in Lawrence, and uh, he uh, he kind of oversaw the whole project. So it was a straightforward uh, project, but I did have to rebuild my engine, but that's another story. Yeah, and, and we'll get into that. Yeah. And um, it's interesting because the AeroV has gone through a number of iterations. So going way back, I don't even know when, the 70s or maybe the early 80s, John Monette had his original VW conversion, which used the AeroV um, I think they he used that in the name. So there's there's some really old Aerov stuff, and then the the more recent engine came out the same time that the Sonics was being uh, really released and and first marketed, and it was the, like you said the 2180, and it didn't have a bunch of the the stuff that's currently on there. And then they they have released these things largely due to customers' requests, you know, for a standard dual ignition and more alternator power to run a full panel and all the things that we builders have been asking them for, they have been introducing these things now to include a beefed up crank and even a pre-assembled crank option and all that stuff. So I really am, am glad at the way Sonics has listened to customers and, and done their best to give us what we're asking for. Yeah, they really responded well. So, Bob, and, and I'm sure we'll talk um, performance maybe a little later, but I just wanted to comment that you fly a lot and, you know, you take a lot of passengers as well. We've flown together a number of times. And um, I think for an engine that is low cost and easy to work on and easy and affordable to maintain, it's a great match. So when you fly by yourself, you get acceptable performance all the time. And when you want to take a big boy, you know, 
like when you have a 200 pounder next to you going for a pancake run, you can do that too. And we've done it a number of times. So anybody that says you can't fly two up in an Aero V, well, that's not entirely true. That's, that is correct. Um, you know, just don't ask more of your engine and airframe than it was designed for and you'll be fine. When I have two people in it and I'm getting 200 feet per minute, I'm just as happy as can be. I keep the speed up so that my cooling, uh, my cylinder heads stay cool. And that's the way I go. Uh, on another note, when I'm cruising, I'm flying at about 3,050 to 3,100 RPM, which means I'm only using about 60 or 65 horsepower. And I'm getting 115 miles an hour. That's five for me. You know, if, you know when, when, um, and I've got uh, data to back this up. When I was breaking my engine in, I had it wide open and I was doing 150, just like they say in the book. But I'd never fly that way all the time. Right. All right. Well, we're going to circle back to some of those things you touched on here in a minute. So last up is Carl Bendo. Carl is an AMP mechanic. He's a longtime VW engine operator. He flies a conventional gear Aero V Turbo powered Sonics from his home airport in Colorado. And that's noteworthy because Carl's home field is elevation 7000 MSL. He's got about 150 hours on his turbo now. And as of last report, it was pulling like a banshee. Carl, how's it going? It's going very well. I don't know if you caught our last uh, our last podcast, but uh, John was kind of bagging on you. He was saying that uh, that you just flog your Aero V Turbo just mercilessly. Now that can't possibly be true, right? Uh, I push it. I would be the first one to admit that I try to push it to its limit and see what its performance is like. And I'm running a <laughs> I'm running a uh, cruise propeller on it here. It performs very well. I'm very. I really like it. So, yeah, I was just kind. Of, I was just kind of teasing because you have, I think, probably more hours on your turbo than I don't know. Maybe maybe almost everybody else. And you are not gentle and kind. You fly it a lot. You fly it hard. I think you have a good eye for the details, and that's certainly important. But um, that little thing just keeps on pulling, and I I love it. Oh yeah, it, it's uh, it it's well worth. Uh, the investment for the what I, where my pattern altitude is, you know, at seven thousand feet. So I mean, it makes a huge difference. And you know, I've I have flown, I have flown it when it I have lost the turbo and have flown it with with out turbo. Had to be back to the airport because from an exhaust leak, and uh, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, you get hooked on that power, and uh, you don't want to give it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, guys, let's just jump right into this. We're not going to do any news or any other announcements. We got a lot to ground to cover, so I'm going to get right into it. So first off, let me just set this topic up for everybody listening. So why are we doing this topic? Like, What are, what are the goals that we are trying to accomplish by doing this? First off, this podcast is not to rehash the manual or the assembly video. So the manual's got all the the details in there. The video kind of shows you step-by-step, and those are great things. And so we're not going to do a a step-by-step how-to. But what we do want to do is we want to call attention to areas of special emphasis. These might need a little bit extra explanation, maybe as a first-time builder. It might not be as intuitive um, as someone who's been working on them for a while. Or areas that, you know, the manual might tell you exactly what to do, but without some experience, you don't understand the significance of what's in the manual. So I call that underappreciate the significance. 
We're also going to talk about some tips on building and operating it. And these are things that we've all kind of learned over the years. Sometimes we've learned these the hard way. And we're going to try to make sure that people, um, people have those things that, um, you know, that we put in our kit bag. So the next thing I want to hit before we jump into to this is um, just a, a caution. So be careful who you listen to. We are just five people. You know, we have some experience and we're going to share the things that we've done and we've observed our direct firsthand experience. Uh, I'm not claiming to be a VW expert. I'm just simply talking about what I've done and what's worked for me. Be careful listening to internet experts out there that maybe don't have very good credentials. And if there's any doubt as to what you're hearing from us or from anybody else, the number one source for accurate, timely information is Sonic Aircraft. They're the ones who can tell you exactly what has worked. And they've been doing this for a long time. John Monette's been doing it for 40 plus years. He's probably a good person to listen to. He has no interest in leading people down the wrong road and making them unsuccessful in building and operating their AeroVs. He is as invested as anybody else in making sure that we all have good running engines and so use the tech support and use those guys. So that's my, my just my general caution. If something we say doesn't sound quite right, call up Kerry and, and vet it through them and he can set you straight. And I think that our advice here is going to be pretty well based in experience and even in points where we might maybe take a slightly different tact than Sonics has in the past. Uh, I don't think you're going to hear anything that is just blatantly wrong from, from the group that we have here. So with that, Let's jump in. And so the first thing I want to talk about is really just sort of prepping for the build. Like we mentioned, the Aero-V is a kit engine. It comes in three or four big boxes, and it's a combination of parts that Sonics has manufactured specifically to convert the VW for, for the aircraft use. And these are, you know, things like the intake and exhaust, the, um, the intake couplers, a bunch of stuff like that. The red anodized parts. These are parts that they machine through their suppliers and they're just their AeroV kit parts. So you have those parts. You have off-the-shelf VW parts. These are all hot rod parts coming from a variety of, of sources. Some of these parts you can get off of Amazon or you can get them from Jags or wherever, any of the buggy shops. They're just regular hot, hot rod VW parts. And then other parts are modified by Sonics to do the job that they want them to do, such as... The, um, the cylinder heads are a good example. Sonics has used a couple of different manufacturers of cylinder heads, but they all do the same thing. They have to have the right size valves. They have to have the right configuration, and um, they need to be machined by them to accept the second set of spark plugs. So you're going to find all three of those type of, of things. And there are some things that you need to do to, uh, to just set yourself up for the build. Gary, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this over to you to kind of start us off. What I'd like you to do is just help a new builder kind of get in the proper frame of mind. You've got three big boxes. You opened them up from Sonics. You know what's in the box. You have your assembly manual. You're reading through the manual and watching the video to get an idea on, on what this is. But what are those first things you ought to do before you start putting a wrench and start checking off boxes on your assembly manual just to make sure that you're set up and ready to have a good successful build? Talk us through the prep phase. Uh, first of all, I think you need patience. You know, I think uh, it was deceptive to me that the engine looks so simplistic that you take the approach that it's really a simplistic assembly. And I'm not sure I really agree with that after my prior experience with it. Um, although it's relatively low parts counts, you got to make sure everything is really going to fit well and match well. And that you've kind of brought up the big point. Many of these parts are sourced from lots of different vendors. And 
as with everything, you know, you might get 99 parts that are perfectly great, but you might get one part that isn't quite machined well. Um, so in general, as you're looking at all these parts, don't think that you're really just going to start with a manual and the parts and just go and start assembling part to part to part and get this thing assembled and put together in the first round. I think you really need to take the thing and start looking at it, playing with it, kind of seeing how everything integrates in there. Uh, and basically you'll be doing some relatively dry assembly runs just to make sure parts fit. Um, I can give you an example. My first Araby case that I had, as I start to lay my camshaft in there, it absolutely would not rotate. The lobes were hitting on metal itself. And so basically the line bore for the cam was off. Sonics graciously sent me a return merchandise authorization number. I sent it back to them. Uh, they said, yep, indeed. And they sent me a new case out. Uh, so that can happen with a case. It could happen with your rods. It could happen with uh, almost anything. So, uh, you know, as you're, as you're inventorying your parts, you got to make sure they get all cleaned up, get residual chips out, you know, from all the machining and check to make sure things are, are starting to look appropriate. And that's going to go, you'll find more and more of those problems as you start going on. But don't just get all the parts out and start thinking you're going to start gluing everything together and be done in a day with it. And you need to approach it with a critical eye. You have to develop the intuition to spot where there's an interference or something's not quite right. That can be hard initially when you have zero experience. But, you know, the burden is on you as the builder of that engine to check those things out carefully and to, to identify those problems and then communicate that back with Sonics. And they'll do the right thing. They'll, they'll send you replacement parts if indeed the parts are messed up. There's not going to be any problem. They're going to take care of the builders in that sense. Sure. One thing uh, that you might also look at while you have the, the parts apart is some of the heads have uh, casting flash at the joint between the two halves of the mold. And if you've got the heads off, it's a lot easier to take your 12-inch uh, 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 drills and drill that flash out so that you got a free flow of air uh, at the heads. Um, if you've ever looked at one of the heads, you know, you'll know what I'm talking about. But uh, Charlie Radford and I both did that on our uh, AeroVs after they were assembled, and it uh, it made a, uh, a difference. Yeah, and these are the areas around the exhaust port and on the end of the heads that look like waffle pattern. And a lot of that webbing is just flashing that leaked out of the mold. And you can you can cut that stuff out of there and improve the airflow dramatically. Yes, you can. And probably 30 years ago when the castings were pristine, none of that stuff was there. But they've been used and reused, and these things happen over time. Right. So let's talk about cleaning parts. So what are the essential things that you want to get in there and, and clean? Um, and we're talking about, you know, on initial assembly when you're prepping parts to start to start on the manual. Mike, um, you've done this a, a number of times. What do you think the, the areas that you really want to focus on? Well, there's a lot of stuff around the case that uh, that can get cleaned up. And I think as, as Scott pointed out, you know, every once in a while you find things that, that, uh, that interfere. So uh, you may not know at the beginning what things need to get cleaned up, but as you put things together, um, don't just assume that, that they're going to go together and everything's going to spin fine. You know, do a test fit. Uh, spin it if it's not working. You know, open the case back up. Try to find out. You know, what's what's hitting what. Um, so I'm not sure you can clean up a ton of stuff ahead of time. You really kind of find it as you go. But you just have to be uh, willing to be patient enough to find that stuff and 
just go back and go, okay, you got to clean this up and, and do it and move on. And now what about cleaning in the, in the literal sense of, you know, like removing the, the packing grease and any uh, machining chips? Talk us through that piece of it also. Yeah, I mean, there really is stuff um, floating around in there, and you wouldn't think that there were, but, you know, you really can find uh, metal chips from, from the machining. And so, um, you know, I, I was cleaning everything up with mineral spirits. I was going in there with my compressor and blowing out everything that I could find, uh, you know, kind of looking for any of that, uh, that extra flash. Um, but, yeah, it, it, I definitely gave it a thorough cleaning. Uh, there, there's definitely stuff there left over from machining. And uh, areas around the oil galleys, um, I always like to get some of those big pipe cleaners. You can get them from the art stores, you know, just the big fat ones. And just run those pipe cleaners through. It's like it's like running a bore swab through a shotgun. You want to get any of that junk that might be hiding down inside the galley, you want to pull that stuff out of there. Yeah, and I did find some of that in there using the same thing, using the pipe cleaners. Okay, um, let's talk about the uh, the restrictor fitting in the um, front bearing that's closest to the prop hub. This has probably changed, I don't know, a couple of times where the early cases did not have that restrictor plug modified in any way. They just, as it came from the factory. And then there is a school of thought that says that it should always be removed and then a plug drilled and tapped and put in in its place. I might be able to answer a little bit to that. Yeah, Gary, why don't you break that down? I think there's a lot of confusion as to what's going on there. Yeah, that discussion actually came out uh, about 2010, 2011, as I was assembling mine. Um, it really got heated and, and noticeable, unfortunately, right after I assembled mine. And so the restrictor plug was still in my case. Um, John Monette at times said he'd really not had any previous problems with it. Uh, but because of the the chat and the, and the potential concern to having restricted onto that uh, restricted air flow, uh, oil flow to that front bearing, he had finally decided yes, they should probably go ahead and start removing them and uh, just plugging them on the outside without the restrictor in there. But the theory is that sometimes those restrictor plugs might actually be set deeper than what was originally intended to, and there's really no great way for us to check and measure how much flow we're getting past there. So the thought was is just simply drill them out, pull the plug out, and then just put a, a pipe plug on top of it to seal it up. Well, I had already had my engine assembled, and you know, based on uh, Mr. Manette's previous experience with it, I decided to just go ahead and let it run as it was. Uh, and I said to myself, well, you know, next time I do have to pull the engine apart, I'll go ahead and pull the restrictor out. Some people seem to think that you can try to cautiously drill out some of the stuff and using grease on drill bits and, and try to trap all the shavings as you're drilling. Uh, I was not particularly excited about doing that. I have tried to do that on some other things before and still notice a significant amount of, of, of shavings that could easily be missed and end up circulating through your engine. So I left mine. Uh, I got about 330 hours initially and started to notice some increased seepage of oil around the, uh, the front of the, the hub as well as the beginning of a wobble in there too. and just didn't like the feel and look of it, so I disassembled it. And sure enough, I found that actually, I think we call that the number four bearing, but it doesn't make a difference. The prop up bearing uh, was really starting to get eroded. It had some significant uh, gouges in it. And so I caught mine ahead of time before failure, but you know whether it was related to the restrictor plug or not, but I did have a, a number 
a bearing failure at that point. Okay, so let, let's just maybe simplify this uh, as, um, you know, maybe a lessons learned. If you have a new current production ROV, Sonics, I think, shipping those standard with the restrictor removed and a plug reinstalled themselves. I think all you need to do is verify that that is the case. If you have a case that is an older case or possibly was not modified, what is your consensus on just going ahead and doing that or leaving it and running it as is? I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts. I would absolutely pull it out and take the restrictor out just to make sure. Okay. Carl, what do you think? I would agree with Gary on that. You've been working on VW engines for a long time. Is this something that other aspects, you know, non-aviation uses do? Yes. I mean, it's, it, it helps to, you know, ensure that you're getting a good flow of oil. So it's definitely something that you see in a lot of the bug shops and the sand rail guys are doing stuff like that. And this is not a complicated process. How long does it take to do this whole thing? Uh, just a few minutes. Yeah. yeah, a few minutes. You want to do it when it's disassembled, for sure. And, and that's kind of what my thoughts um, you know, follow as well. It's easy to do up front. If you just plan to do it, it won't take you very long. It's not that hard. You can clean everything thoroughly, and you'll never have to worry about it. Yeah, getting getting back to the cleaning, you know, you guys had talked about the, the you know, using the pipe brushes and metal chips and doing all that. And, I, you know, I went ahead and did all that. One of the things that I also did was I ran both my case halves through my dishwasher about half a dozen times to wash it and to get all the oil and grease and lubricants. I do it with other case halves and I just used, you could, you know, run your hot dishwasher hot with cascade dishwashing detergent because it's a non-foaming degreaser. And then I ran it about half a dozen times through there when my wife was on vacation, of course, and not in the house. (laughs) (laughs) And then just blow it out, you know, with compressed air real thoroughly. And you have a, you know, basically a sterilized case when you start. Yeah. And that's probably a lot easier than, you know, using a half a gallon of mineral spirits. I ran my dishwasher as well. I'll fess up. Yeah. That's a good tip. I I didn't even think about it. I, uh. I just struggled with uh, solvents and, you know, blow nozzles and all that. But next time, I'm going to do it next time. <laughs> okay, let's talk about um, areas to inspect before you start building on the heads. Um, what what are the key areas that you just want to give a, a good look before you get started? We talked about the flashing. What else? Uh, you know, the thing I looked for when I started assembling mine was just the quality of the parts. When I ordered my original ROV, it came in three boxes, and I just kind of stuck it in in the box and didn't really look at anything until I went to go start the build. And then I come to find out that I was backordered on several items that I hadn't received. So it's really important to go through your packing slip when you get your engine and make sure that you have all your parts and pieces and nothing's been backordered, you know, and then look at the quality of the the heads themselves, the fins, the castings, you have to inspect everything before you even start. Lay it out. If you have if you have the space and you can lay it out on a table, you know, in the in the process that it needs to be done and can go through and look at everything and verify that it's in good condition before you start, you'll save yourself a lot of aggravation. I have heard too of some other problems related to the case. Um, a simple thing to check and it's pretty easy to do visually is to look at the stud inserts um, that, are, that are tapped in there. They're basically like helicoils. 
Um, and that's what actually helps to hold the cylinder studs in place for some of these oversized items. I have heard and seen every once in a while, some of those helicoils can actually be a little bit proud of the mating surface, and that will certainly cause you some, some grief. And that will interfere with the cylinder barrel shims sitting flat. Yeah, and you'll, you'll get some massive leaks. Yeah. Once again, a whole lot easier to dress those up before you start putting things together. After you've mated the case together and the crank and the cam are all installed, that's a poor time to find that you need to get the Dremel out and grind on something. Well, again, it kind of goes back to my other premise, though, is that you'll basically be doing some uh, a significant amount of assembly uh, just to do, as Michael said, to do rotational checks. And hopefully as you do these, you'll start to find some where the fitting issues are that may not necessarily be overt to the eye initially. I didn't know a lot of things to look for, at least, you know, in the parts when I did it the first time, because I, you know, other than doing a little lawnmower work, I'd never put an engine together before. Uh, so it was really that, it was really during construction that I really picked up, okay, I need to check this, I need to check this, I need to check that. So that's the stuff that I kind of developed a big long list of, you know, make sure you check this. And, you know, one of the first things was that I learned the second time around was to CC the heads. Uh, because the chambers, you know, should all be relatively the same number of cc's. But I found uh, when I did that on my second build that three of my chambers were almost identical, and one was way off. So that adjusted what I did for sh- for uh, for the uh, uh, not the barrel shims for the um, head gaskets. Um, you know, changing the thickness of those to get all the uh, the chambers equal cc's. If someone's not familiar with what we're talking about, though, uh, basically that process involves, at least how I did it, you can get a little kit. It's basically a sheet of plexiglass that will fit over to this thing with a hole in it. And you put a little, like, white lithium grease on one side of the plexiglass sheet so it kind of makes a nice little seal on the cylinder head itself as the cylinder head is turned upside down. It's a cup-looking. And then you'll take a, a calibrated syringe and install... Uh, it's the fluid or oil into there, and then you can measure each individual uh, uh, cylinder head to make sure they're they're all the same number of cc's. We'll just say example thirty cc's, just as some wild wild example. And that's what we're talking about cc'ing, so we know what kind of compression ratios we need to eventually end up with. Yeah, and that's probably a good test just to um, identify if there's a problem that you need to address. That's not mentioned in the in the manual. However, um, there's all kinds of information on the internet. If you get a hot rod VW book, it'll definitely talk about that. So there's there's industry references that you can find that will walk you through that process. And that would also act as a secondary check too. Is as, as you're putting that oil in there and it starts leaking out the bottom of it, and you know you have a a valve seat issue seal as well. Yeah, and and that's a good point because whether you CC or not you ought to check your valves to make sure that they're seating properly. Again, if you get a, a brand new head, it may be perfect or there may be an issue that you won't find until you start running it. But it's very simple just to check and pour some lightweight oil or some solvent in the in the head and see if it leaks past the valve. But you ought to do something. And if they're leaking, don't just install them. Do something about fixing the leaking valves before you install them. Bob, I think you've done uh, valve work on your heads before. Tell us about that. Well, I'm lucky. I've got uh, V Village here in Kansas City, and they'll do a side for $135. 
So uh, uh, plus I have to buy the the exhaust valves from uh, I think it's Rock Auto, and they're nine dollars a piece. Um, when I did my full rebuild, of course I I uh, had the the valves uh, done, and then uh, on my um, on my right side or the uh, I'm sorry the starboard side um, number three cylinder which always runs hot in a VW and especially in my airplane I started to get a little uh, leakage so I had it uh, done again and uh, it um, I can't really tell you that much it takes about you know 30 or 40 minutes to take the head off and then I take it down to V Village and you know in three days it comes back. Uh, I will say this, both of my heads have a crack between the cylinders, and the guy down at V Village says all the 2180s seem to have that crack, and my engine has been running fine with that crack, so I guess it's not something to worry about. Yeah, that's a known thing. Uh, You start putting in the oversized valves, like on a 2180, um, those valves are much bigger than standard valves, and and the amount of meat between the intake and exhaust valves gets smaller and smaller until it's just a little sliver. That's pretty much what we have in our heads. And that crack is, is very common, and it's typically not a problem. So if it gets bad, you'll know it. But the fact that it's cracked is not necessarily a problem. Yeah, and I, you know, with, you know, I'm lucky because I got V Village right here in Kansas City, and and $135 for a valve job is not breaking the bank. Yeah, one of the things you can do if if you are getting a little bit of leakage past the valve, you'll need a uh, a valve compressor to remove the valve springs, and um, and then just get a valve lapping kit, and it has a little suction cup handle and the valve lapping compound, and just lap the valve to the seat, and that way you get good even contact, you get a good seal, and you get good heat transfer out of the valve back into the seat and into the head. Even if you get 100 hours and you're doing an annual, and you're starting to get a little bit of lower compression, you can still relap those valves, and that will make them last a lot longer. And it's just a matter of keeping tabs on it and making sure that, you know, that seat does stay in good contact. Okay, um, moving on. Let's just talk about tools and other stuff that you want to have on hand. Were there any special tools that we think that people ought to just, you know, go out and gather and have them ready so that you don't interfere and slow down with your build? Carl, why don't you start us off and talk, talk about those tools that, that you may need to go out and, and, uh, and get handy. Uh, well, I mean, your basic hand tools, metric and standard, wrenches, sockets, things of that nature. I mean, you'll need a, a decent torque wrench and then a ring compressor uh, to compress the rings onto the piston when you go to push the pistons in and do all that. So. Yeah, let me talk about that ring compressor just for a second. The kit includes that little bent metal band that will work to compress the rings, but it's really kind of a pain in the butt to use. It's, it's inexpensive and easy, but I think going out and uh, hit up the local auto store and go buy a, a halfway decent ring compressor, it will make installing the pistons back into the cylinders so much easier that you won't really fret about pulling the rings on and off and and uh, and doing that kind of stuff, rather than struggling with that little band that they say provide. Correct. It makes it, you know, the I think probably the most important piece of advice that I could give to anybody when they're assembling this engine is, is if you're fighting it and you're trying to struggle to get things to fit, then you're, you're definitely doing something wrong. And that would be one of those, one of those tools that 
you know, you, if you have the right tool, it'll make it fit and go in a lot, a lot smoother and you don't have to struggle trying to get through it. So, you know, you'll need a, a decent set of feeler gauges, you know, you know, like a fan type feeler gauge setup, And that's really about it. There's not really a lot of specialized tools that you need to assemble this engine. It's, it's designed to be easily maintained and it's it's a owner type of maintenance type of engine what was its original design from you know the 30s and 40s and so it it was it's it's not it's not something that you have to go out and spend thousands of dollars in tools to 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 put together so yeah, you will you will besides a regular torque wrench you you will need one big big torque wrench for the gland nut in the back and that thing takes i think it's what 237 foot pounds or something well, there's a way around that, and I show that on my website. What we did was we got a one by four that was about four foot long, and we bolted that to the uh, the prop bolts. And then I did a calculation of my weight and a lever arm. I put the gland nut on, and we got it snug. I stood there, and then my buddy, we had the engine on a, on a mount, and then my buddy slowly lifted me off the ground. So I was 90 degrees to the gland nut, and I was 200 pounds, and I was I don't know how many inches away from the, the center, and that was our torque. So there's there's a way to do it without you know getting a, a giant torque wrench. I went with the big tool. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we all know whoever dies with the most tools wins. Yeah, that's right. And if you don't want to if you don't want to buy one of those big uh, breaker bars or those big torque wrenches, places like AutoZone oftentimes have a tool rental policy where you just go in, you leave a deposit, they don't even charge you for it. You use it for a, a couple hours and bring it back, and it doesn't cost you a dime. So go make friends with your local auto parts store. They'll take care of you. There's a couple of additional things that are nice to have. You know, as we're trying to assemble the heads onto the case, we have the lifters, the valve lifters in there, and you have to kind of rotate them around. Sometimes they'll have an annoying habit of, of falling back out before you're ready to get the heads in the proper position. Uh, there's a little spring uh, that's kind of a circular with little two little ears on it called a valve lifter clip that you can stick in there to help hold the valve lifters in place so they don't fall out while you're assembling. And that's kind of nice, and they're very they're dirt cheap. Um, a couple of other things that I use too, because again, you're right, you can never have too many tools. As we go to uh, install uh, the crankshaft seal on the, on the end of this thing, and Carl's had a lot of experience with that, there's a couple ways of doing it. John Monet just basically says use a, a mallet and gently tap it in until it's flush. But there's also another gizmo. It's basically a plate with a, uh, a threaded uh, bolt to it that screws into the gland nut and, and presses that seal, that crankshaft seal in place. So it should be the proper depth. So that's another thing that's pretty inexpensive as well. Um, the next thing we might come to a little bit later on is how to set the shims at the end of the crankshaft for the mount, proper amount of crankshaft play fore and aft. John Monette and AeroV recommended using feeler gauges, which I did the first time, and I think I got it close. Uh, another way that I saw later on is actually to use like a dial micrometer and you actually mount that to the back of the case in one of the accessible thread holes back there, and you can set that thing up, and then you can you can rock your crankshaft forward and aft 
and see what the actual run out is. And I found that really nice to do when I reassembled it the second time. Yeah, I did the same thing. So I'll just add a couple more things that I think you ought to assemble um, in your toolkit. And one of those is a good set of snap ring pliers, because when you go to put the, the pins in the pistons, you're not going to want to use a, a needle nose pliers or something like that and, and run the risk of scoring one of those clips, which will cause one of the ears to break off. So go to Harbor Freight and spend five bucks for a set of snap ring pliers and you'll have everything you need. I thought you said good quality. Well, you only have to put in a handful of them. So you could buy good quality or you could go to Harbor Freight and it'll be okay too. So Pittsburgh Steel is good. That's good. Okay. Now I know. <laughs> okay. And then uh, chemicals. Um, the manual does a pretty good job of kind of walking you through all the chemicals you're going to need. We talked about the cleaners, um, you know, mineral spirits or maybe kerosene to, to degrease and clean. But um, they call out pretty much the, the type of Loctite that you're going to need. And it's really only the blue medium-strength Loctite or the red high-strength Loctite. They call out the type of RTV, and they also call out Permatex Aviation Gasmet Maker number 3 for things like on the, the flanges on the, ca- the crankcase and stuff like that. Uh, just kind of flip through your manual and figure out like a few steps ahead and what type of chemical or, or sealant that you're going to need, and then go get that stuff and have it on hand. And then one thing that's not in the manual that I'll add to the, to the list is they, they like to use white lithium grease as assembly lube. And that's probably fine if, if you're going to put the engine together and then go start it up and run it right away. But lithium grease has a tendency to get hard and kind of chalky if it sits for more than, I don't know, a few weeks or a couple of months. Or if it's in there for a couple of years, then you're going to have problems. Um, so you might, it, it, depending on your timeline, you might go get a, uh, a tube of assembly lube or something like a good... Um, molly lube, which you can use on all kinds of stuff, bearings, and and um, you can use it on the lifters and all kinds of stuff like that. And that's what I tend to do. The last thing I'll add to the list is just um, a quart of motor oil, some sort of motor oil, because after you clean everything, like your cylinders and the, the camshaft and stuff like that, you're going to want to just re-oil it so it doesn't rust while you're waiting to start the thing up. So a rag with some some clean motor oil just to kind of re-wipe the surface down right before you button it all up will keep it protected. And you don't want to leave those surfaces just bone dry, especially if they've been degreased. Okay, did I miss anything on chemicals? Well, as far as assembling in the case halves, I actually ran across another source and they suggested using Loctite 518-518. Uh, it's kind of like a red gel. That's a pretty cranberry color. If nothing else, it's worthwhile just using it for the color. It's an anaerobic sealer. So basically, as you put it on the case halves, you can take all the time in the world that you need before you assemble this thing together. That being said, when you do stick it together and it flashes out, it will instantly seal. And anything that's, that's on the outside is easily removable with just a rag in your finger. Um, I used that in my my last assembly, and I have to say I had absolutely no leaks whatsoever in my case halves. I was really, really happy with using this stuff. With the Permatex Formagastic number 3, I wasn't quite sure the first time what kind of a a wait time I needed, and I probably reassembled my engine a little bit too soon before it was really, really tacky. I think if you're going to use the Permatex, don't be in a hurry. Even after you put it down, you've got quite a bit of time and you really do want it to start to to almost semi-dry out and get really, really tacky before you go to assemble it. 
but again, if I had to do it again, I would still use that Loctite 518 for the case halves. Yeah, that, that's a good point, Gary. And um, it, it, anybody who's worked on Jabiru's, uh Loctite 518 is, is what they specify for just about everything. Um, it, deep in the engine when it was first put together, for sealing on the back around where the distributors come off, all that kind of stuff. So I've got a tube of 518 that I use on my Jabiru. I like the, the Permatex number three, just because it's thin, it can fill those little gaps. I don't think there's a problem using Loctite on the AeroV for everything that, that Permatex was specified. It's just kind of what you want to use. But there is a, a right and a wrong way to use that, that gasket maker number three. Um, if you load it up with just a wet, goopy mess and you have a shiny, slick surface on that flange and then you bolt it all up, 99% of that is going to get squished out and it's going to go somewhere. And so if you put on your intake elbows and you goop that thing all up, well, there's a lot of sealant on that intake elbow and it's all going to run someplace. And I've actually seen it puddle up on the backside of the valve and glue the valve to the valve seat because it was just way over applied. So you just got to use it really sparingly. And you want to see just a little bit of squish out, but not so much that it's running all over the place. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and one of the places uh, on the engine half, when you're putting the case together, you got to be careful of with that or any material that's going to ooze out is right around the prop hub area because there's a couple of oil galleys right there that uh, that are really easy to get uh, that material in. Put the case half together, it hardens, and now your, your oil galleys are blocked. Right, and there's one at the rear main seal also, and the same thing. It's a, it's a drain return. And if you plug that up with sealant, it's not going to have anywhere to go. Also, I'll just I'll mention um, the Loctite primer. There's a couple of places in the manual that call for primer. And this can be a little bit confusing if you've never used this stuff. You know, we use uh, the red and blue Loctite. There's some other more exotic um, types of Loctite, which we don't really need to get into. But in general, if you're using Loctite on things like stainless steel, or plated parts, or especially anodized parts, that Loctite, the, the blue Loctite, doesn't cure quite the same way as on aluminum or steel or something like that. It's, it's all about the, uh, the trace elements and the alloys. And so if you use this spray-on primer, it just causes the Loctite to cure properly like it was designed to. So that's my advice. If it's in the manual it says use primer, uh, it's probably going into an anodized aluminum part a stainless part or something that's heavily plated. And that will make sure that your Loctite cures properly and you get full strength the way it was designed to. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll tell a quick story about that on the, the, uh, the stator assembly where you've got the, uh, the, the cap screws, the cap head screws. That's one of the places they call for the Loctite with the Loctite primer. And the primer they call for is kind of like a pasty. It's like, it's kind of like lipstick and you put it on half, half the, uh, half the fastener and the other half gets the Loctite. And I did that per the manual, per the instructions, but um, a year and a half, a year or something after I'd built the engine, I, my, uh, uh, my electrical started going crazy on a flight. And so I landed, I hand turned the prop, heard a lot of grinding in the back. And to make a long story short, those cap screws had loosened uh, to the point where one of them had sheared completely off. The other ones I could loosen with my fingers, and it let the entire stator assembly on the back of the engine wobble, and it just destroyed everything back there. I, so I had to take the engine out. I had to take the whole stator assembly out, clean everything up, buy new parts, and put it back. So that, there's a lot of stress back there. There's a lot of high RPMs going back there. So get that one right. 
Yeah, and, and I had a note to circle back to that, but that's a great point because you put those things in the back of the engine and then you likely never go back and check them. They're not accessible to just snug them up every so often. So you want to get that absolutely right. You want to make sure they're clean and primed and loctited and torqued down. And that way you, uh, you give yourself the best chance of never having a problem with those things back there. Got it. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on into the build. So I want to start this, this part of it with just sort of a, um, I want to hear your guys' thoughts on what you think the the operations that give the most grief during the build. We've covered a couple of these. That's fine. We'll we'll kind of um you know just make sure we summarize everything. But um, Mike, why don't you just run through in your experience and and maybe talking to fellow builders, what are the things that that cause people the most problems that we want to kind of talk about some tips on how to mitigate that. All right. Let's see. I got a page and a half of notes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll, I'll run through these quickly, and then I'm sure everybody else has some, has some similar uh, experiences. And then, you know, obviously we can go back and hit on some of these. But, um, you know, the first, the, the first thing is, um, you know, read the manual. It's not perfect, but follow the darn manual. Um, I, I also got How to Rebuild Your Volkswagen Air-Cooled Engine by Tom Wilson, which was good to help uh, fill in the blanks. Uh, if anybody knows about uh, Bob Hoover, the VW guy, you know he helps to fill in some blanks. Um, but but you really you really do have to follow the manual. It, it's pretty good. It's not perfect, but it's it's pretty good. Um, I, there was mention of the oil, the rear oil seal. I never found anything in the written instructions or in the video that said where that was supposed to get installed in relation to the back of the case. And what I finally figured out is that it's basically supposed to be flush with the back of the case. So the three times that I put in an oil seal, I installed it flush to the back of the case and everything seems to work fine. Um, I learned really quickly that when you're installing pistons, stuff paper towels or cloths in the case openings around the, the uh, where the cylinders go in. Because if you drop something into that case that's already bolted together, you're taking it apart. <laughs> so anytime I was working around those open holes where the, uh, where the, the connecting rods come through, uh, I stuffed paper towels or, or, uh, or cloths in there. Uh, um, you'll almost certainly have to trim, cut with a Dremel some of the head studs inside the rocker arm area, or they're going to contact the rocker arm assembly. Um, cut off more than you think because those things will get adjusted, you know, as your heads are, get torqued over the years. Um, they'll uh, cinch down a little bit tighter and tighter to the ends of those studs, so you might as well, you know, cut them off a little further down than you need to, as long as you have, you know, plenty of room for the nuts. Um, that creates a lot of flying metal, so you definitely want to do that with the heads or with, uh, you know, before you bolt the heads on. Um, I found that there were no good instructions for installing the super tin. I <laughs> I struggled to actually find out where vertically on the heads that that super tin went. And, uh, and it's funny that the video actually calls them optional, which, of course, they're not. Um, so uh, I finally found out through Sonics and others, you got to make sure that those go on in a certain location. Make sure that you do it before you put the pushrod tubes on. How do I know that? Because <laughs> I put the pushrod tubes on and then went to put the super tin on and said, oh, that doesn't fit. Um, do a really good job of elongating the pushrod tubes, the little accordions at the ends. Uh, and when you have the, the little uh, uh, seals at the ends of the tubes. I, I put a little bit of Permatex on there. I found that helps to uh, stop some of the seepage that, of the oil that tends to get past there. 
Um, I made and Mike. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. How how are you um, extending those? There's there's two different ways, and I think one way is better than another. <laughs> so how how are you extending those? I I just did it with my hands. I grab. I had a couple of uh, you know rags, and I grabbed one end, uh, you know the smooth end, and then I grabbed the accordion end, and basically just wiggled them back and forth and pulled them out. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's good. Um, you know, being gentle on it. I have seen people grab them with needle nose pliers. Yeah. The problem is it, it it deforms them. They're no longer circular, and your seals may not you know sit perfectly flat. So you don't want to do that. You can slip the end over a, a like a long socket and kind of use the socket as a as an extended handle to kind of wiggle them and, and extend them. But yeah, you don't want to you don't want to bend those things up. Jeff, I also found that I used a a pretty good size wooden dowel in there and was able to use that too to do the same process that worked pretty well for me. Yeah, right. I, I right. used a piece of pipe. Yep, yep. All those are good. You just don't want to. Ding that end up with um, with pliers because um, you get a little ham fisted, then you're going to have leaks for sure. Well, I'll stop partway through my list and let other people jump in. Okay. Well, I want to go back to. Um, geez, now I forgot all your list. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of good stuff uh, in there. The, the manual, let, the rear. Let's talk about trimming. Trimming the head studs, uh, and and that's a really good point about you know you need to trim more than you think. So here's my recommendation on trimming the the studs. If you, if you bolt your heads on and then you realize after everything is done, you think that they're on there for good. You already torqued the head. The, the, um, the spacers are all in place and permatext. You got the cylinder head gaskets in place, all that stuff. You think that it's good in there for good. And then you find out, oh, geez, I really do have to trim my head studs. You got to make a hard decision. You can attempt to cut them carefully with the head in place. Now I did this and it is very difficult and it is not the right way to go. Um, you can be real careful with the Dremel cutoff wheel. And the danger is that, one, you're going to throw metal everywhere, and you might not be able to clean it all out of there, or even just keep it from getting into the, the nooks and crannies. And two, that you might nick your valve springs with the cutoff wheel, because it's very close to those head studs. If you nick a valve spring with a cutoff wheel, that valve spring will not survive. It will break eventually. And so you have to change the, the valve spring. You can't just pretend like it'll be okay and uh, and get good long life out of your engine. My advice is um, don't do that. Don't try to cut them in place. Don't try to avoid pulling the head off. Mark your studs. Pull everything off. It'll be okay. Um, and then cut them properly, making sure you keep everything clean, and then reassemble them. It'll be easier and quicker in the long run. Don't try to muddle through it with them in place. All right. Um, so... Gary, um, Carl, Bob, anything else that, that Mike covered in the first part of his list that you want to elaborate on? I got some items farther down the list. We'll see if Mike covers. All right. Well, Gary, why don't you go ahead? Why don't you pick it up? You know, some of the things that really got to me the worst is, is those bearings for the crankshaft itself. Not only do you have to put them on as you're doing uh, the prop uh, hub onto the crankshaft, but then you also have to put the other ones that are separated out into the case halves themselves. So first of all, be very careful on the orientation of those um, bearings onto the crankshaft. I think the easier way to do it is if you look on there, there's actually a, a recessed hole where the dowel pins and the crankshaft go into those bearings. As I remember, all of those holes have to face aft towards the flywheel for proper orientation. Um, I, I'll go ahead and fess up. Somehow or another, I had all my bearings laid out when I was doing my prop up, 
And when I pulled it out of the, the oven and started putting the bearings on real quickly, I actually had one reverse somehow. And so I had to have the prop up pulled off and redo my bearings. Uh, as we continue on the bearings, as you fit those into the case themselves, they will look, to honest to God, like those things are seated perfectly. And they'll still be off just a smidgen. If you can find a way that you really are convinced that they're fully seated onto the dowel pins, scribe the size of the bearings on the outside, which won't have any effect on, on the bearing surface itself, right up against the case half so you can get another visual idea that the bearings are starting to seat. That being said, despite all of that, I found too that as I, I start to assemble my case halves and I gently start stugging up ever so slowly all around the case half, do a rotation of your crankshaft to make sure it's not binding. I found frequently that uh, everything, all my marks looked like they were wind up. They looked like they were fully seated. But as I started to get just the slightest amount of torque in those case halves, and I mean just the slightest amount, I'd start to feel some uh, rotational binding in that crankshaft. That means, of course, that you got to take it back off again and recheck those bearings. So those were kind of a personal bugaboo for me as far as those crankshaft bearings. Yeah, Gary, I want to I want to comment on that as well. Those are great points. Um, what I use um, is a I don't even know what you call this tool, but it's like a protractor that is designed to find the exact center line of a of a circle. So it's like a you set it on a a circle and it gives you that perfect diameter line. You can you can drop one of those things on there and and create that center line, uh, or like you're talking about, scribe it on the um the side of the bearing once you've test fit it into the side of the the case that really makes it easy because when you're trying to set the crank in there for one thing you're holding the weight of the crank and that's kind of awkward then you have to try to rotate four different bearings to get them all to line up properly and you get one and the other one pops out and so having a, a visual reference to know that it's lined up with the sides, the split line of the of the case half really makes it a lot easier to get all four of those properly set in. Because if you have one that pops out a little bit, it will bolt up, but it will be draggy and you'll wear that bearing out prematurely. And it's very, very easy to get just the slightest shift to one of those that you would never even see with the scribe marks. So that's what I'm saying. Be very careful putting those halves together and making sure as you progressively torque around that you get no binding because if you do you got to start over right and if the bearing pops up a little bit on the dowel pin the dowel pin can actually crush that hole in, into the bearing and you actually deform the bearing because it's not quite sitting in there right obviously that's not going to be good for the bearing and worst case scenario that bearing will spin in the case and that'll just basically trash your case and possibly break the crank itself so you want to make sure that that's done properly. When it all goes together right, it's almost like it just drops in there like magic. And you're like, man, I don't know why this was so hard before. If it's not going in perfectly, there's something in there that's hanging up. And you just got to stop and reset and, and just keep working it until it all just, just goes in there perfect. And you'll know when it goes in right because it does feel very, very smooth at that point. Carl, I know you've done this a bunch of times. What other tips for bearings do you have? Uh, well, the manual is, is pretty good about lining everything up and which part goes on which side of the case halves and what tabs to file off and those type of things. You know, as, as far as the assembly, you know, you follow those instructions, but you got to make sure that you're, you're lubing everything well as you're assembling it with your assembly lube. 
And then as you're, as you're going together, you need to, the one thing it's, that I always can tell, it, you should have a very smooth and greasy feel as you're turning it. It should be nice and smooth all 360 degrees every time you turn it. You shouldn't feel any kind of catch or bind or a spot or anything. It should just be just smooth as silk. And that's, that's the key uh, to a really good build is making sure that as you're assembling it, you're checking that. And if you feel something, you need to go back, you know, and don't, don't sell yourself short thinking that it's going to work itself out because if it's not smooth, when you assemble it, it's not going to get smoother as you run it. So. Right. And, and this is an area where you have to be honest with yourself. You can't just sort of put the blinders on and wish things away. It won't get better on its own. No, it won't get better on its own. It'll just get worse. So, you know, you just have to, to take your time, make sure you're lubricating it very well as you're going and you're, and you're spinning it, you know, to make sure that everything is nice and smooth. I'll, uh, I'll add one comment about the split bearings on that center bearing there's a half that goes in each half of the crankcase and then each one has its own dowel pin that retains it. Sometimes those can go in and be not quite fully seated. And if you feel the the parting line, if your finger catches on the edge of that bearing, it's not fully seated in the, in the case half. And again, it will bolt up like that and you'll be able to torque it down, um, but it won't be right. So you need to make sure that that bearing is all the way seated and completely flush with the parting line. Correct. And then uh, a final comment about the uh, the oil feed hole in the bearing. Uh, don't confuse the oil hole with the dowel pin hole. Uh, they look kind of the same, and if you uh, plug your oil feed hole with a dowel pin, it's not going to turn out well. And that's happened to at least one person. Yeah. Okay, uh, Gary, um, I uh, I jumped in on your on your bearing part, but I don't want to derail you. So why don't you uh, keep going? Well, that was probably the biggest item with that. But just remember, there's a lot of a lot of parts, just like we talked with the bearings and the, the dowel pin holes facing the crankshaft, uh, facing the five-wheel side. You know, the pistons go in one way. Uh, the connecting rods have to be oriented the same, uh, a special way as well. Um, another thing to kind of make sure you don't forget, because it's kind of easy as you're doing all the big parts, is that dinky little round cam plug at the very back of the engine. Uh, making sure you get that thing in place before you actually put both of those halves together because then you got to take it back apart again. Yeah, and that's an area where you want to get enough sealant to make sure you don't have a leak, but not so much that it oozes out and glues the backside of the cam in place. All right, um, Bob, uh, why don't you uh, why don't you give us some of your highlights? One thing that you don't want to do is forget the oil pressure plungers. In the original manual, it it shows putting the spring in but it doesn't say anything i mean you if you read in detail you see what what that is but it doesn't show a picture of it or anything so on my initial build uh, i put the springs in but i didn't put the plungers in and uh the engine uh started up real nice and i got zero oil pressure and uh i ran it for about 30 seconds and i said well, wait a minute, maybe it's an instrument error. And I stopped the engine, and I looked at everything, and I ran it for about another minute and a half, and I said, wait a minute, something's wrong. So I ran the engine for about two minutes or so with no oil pressure, just the uh, assembly lube in there. And what that caused me was accelerated wear. Actually, when I figured out what happened, 
doing a couple of things. I figured out and I looked in my uh, parts that were left over, which you do have a lot of parts that are left over, mostly connections and stuff like that. I found these two oil pressure plungers. Put them in and the oil pressure came up. One of the things that you should do before you run your engine to make sure that you do have oil pressure is get a, a wad of paper towels, uh, put it at the oil port where the uh, pressure sender is there at the on the top uh, starboard side of the engine, and crank your engine, and oil should squirt out of that. Uh, that will tell you that you've got, you know, your uh, oil pump is working, and that you'll have pressure when you start your engine. That accelerated wear caused me to completely overhaul my engine at 113 hours. I could never get the oil pressure up above tw about 25 pounds uh, at uh, after I had done that, uh, you know, two or two or three minutes of running it without any oil pressure, um, which is kind of a testimony to the engine that even with all that accelerated wear, it still ran. 113 hours before it got out of spec. Uh, one of the things I found out in all of this is the little red lights that come on in the uh, Volkswagen uh, Beetles. That light comes on at six pounds of pressure. So when we're running at 40 pounds of pressure, like my engine runs now after the rebuild, or 42 or, or thereabouts, um, you know we're running plenty of oil pressure. So that's, uh, that's one of the things that you want to make sure that you have before you run the engine is, is make sure you have oil pressure, and it's real easy to check. Yeah, I think that that's something that um, you hear about in uh, uh, buggy shops and other forums like that is, is how to pre-oil your engine and, and how to check before you actually fire it up. And I think your tip about pulling the, uh, that port by the, the oil pressure sender, that's a good one. Pull the plugs out when, it, when you're ready to do your first engine start. Crank it on the starter to circulate oil, and when you got oil squirting out there, then you you can be assured that you've got oil circulating through the engine. That's a, a really good thing to do just to ensure that you don't have a problem when you actually fire it up. Uh, one of the other things that I did when I was struggling to get oil pressure was I took the oil pump off and the oil pump housing, and I machined it down so that my, my uh, tolerance between the flat plate and the oil um, pump gears, uh, and I can't remember what the clearance is, but mine was a little bit larger than that, and so I took um, thousand grit sandpaper, I taped it to a uh, the plate, uh, the steel plate on my uh, bandsaw, so I had a flat surface, put a bunch of water on it, and rotated around round and around 10 circuits clockwise and 10 circuits counterclockwise and actually machined a couple of thousands off that that fitting cleaned it all up put it back in took my um, uh, took my feeler gauge and I, I I took a couple of thousands off the space between the gears and the and the, the plate that covers that up and that helped my uh, oil pressure a little bit Normally, you wouldn't have to do that, but I was, I was going for every, every pound of pressure I could get. Um, since I rebuilt the engine, I mean, the, the pressure came up, and it's fine, and it runs, it runs great. But that, was, uh, that cost me a, a, a rebuild. 
Now, th- there is a, a note in the manual about checking the clearance between the, the face of the oil pump gears and yeah. the cover. And, yeah. and there's a spec. You know, if that, that t- if that space gets really excessively large, you're going to bypass oil internally and it's not going to build pressure going to the engine. Um, and, and that's a good way of adjusting that tolerance by sanding it down very slowly and, and precisely like you did. Yeah, and you want to you want to go counterclockwise and then clockwise because no matter how careful you are to hold your hand pressure parallel to the force, you're not going to make it parallel to the force. And so if you go clockwise and counterclockwise, you'll uh, cancel out any variation and it it really does work surprisingly well. Sorry, I'll add to the to the oil pump cover what I found is uh, when putting that that cover plate on the manual says to put permatex and the paper gasket in place but the video only shows permatex and the vw book says to use a paper gasket but doesn't say anything about permatex so i ended up leaving the uh, the paper gasket out and just using the permatex because again i, I figured the paper was just adding more thickness uh, you know more more offset to that plate and more oil was going to pass by the gears yeah, that's right. And I think the latest version of the manual just talks about Permatex as well. So there's one other thing I want to talk about on the oil relief plungers. Just, a, I guess, a quick review on, on what those plungers are doing. And that's to control oil either going to the galleys and ultimately to the oil cooler in the, in the normal car mode, um, or to open that relief plunger at a certain PSI and bypass that oil back into the sump. So you don't build excessive oil and, and blow the cooler up and things like that. So that, that could fail in a couple of different ways and, and not including Bob, the, the thing that you had where the plunger wasn't in place. If the plunger gets stuck in one position or the other, that design feature is not going to work. If the plunger gets stuck at the bottom of its travel, it will never bypass oil and you'll build excessively high pressure until you blow your oil cooler up. And that can be a problem on the first cold day when you see 100 PSI and your cooler just can't take it and you blow it apart. Or possibly on takeoff would be a, a even worse case. If that plunger has been pushed out a little bit and then gets stuck, now you're constantly bypassing oil back into the sump and you're going to have chronically low oil pressure. Or in Bob's case, where there's no plunger there at all, it's all being bypassed back into the sump and you have no oil pressure. Um, so you want that plunger to do its job. And it, to do its job, it has to be able to move freely in the passageway and it has to have a good clean seat to, to plug up against on there. So the manual talks about inspecting the seat to make sure that it's not uneven or rippled or there's, you know, problems in the machining of it. And then check the movement of the plunger down inside the hole to make sure that it can move freely. And this is an area I think that probably gets overlooked uh, way too often. It's hard to see if that plunger moves freely because you stick it in the hole and that hole is, is kind of tapered. At the edge of the case, it's a larger diameter because the threads have been cut into it. And then as you get further and further in, it gets tighter and tighter. And so you really need to kind of commit yourself to putting that plunger all the way in. And if it won't move freely, and certainly if you can't get it back out, you have a stuck plunger and you need to do whatever it takes to extract that plunger and then smooth it down so that it can move freely. Ideally, you know, it should, it should basically just drop right out with gravity um, it, it, without wobbling it down inside the bore. I'm glad you went back to that because I had some problems too. 
many times I don't find it necessarily or could be possibly the plunger itself, but I find more of the problems has to be with the machining of the wall itself. You'll get a lot of ridges in there, and then that the bottom of that plunger will actually catch on one of those ridges, and, and that gives you the grief. I checked with one VW shop. They said they actually had a very special tool uh, to go in there and try to hone those things out and make them a little bit smoother, but it was ungodly expensive, and he wasn't going to loan it to me. Um, so if, as you're doing that to make sure everything moves, moves smoothly, check not only the plunger but also those walls because I think that's where the biggest hang-up is. Yeah, and I, I found the same thing on mine, and uh, my plunger definitely was hanging up, and so I took a, a wooden dowel that was just slightly smaller than that hole, put some emery cloth around it, and then uh, kind of uh, you know ran that in between my hands and, and kind of reamed that out, and that took care of a lot of that uh, those ridges, and it wasn't an ungodly expensive tool. Um, but then I did a little emery uh, on the plunger itself too, and it was it was a big difference uh, between before I started and after I finished. Yeah, the camphor, the bottom edges of that plunger, where it doesn't make a difference, yeah. could go a long way not to hang up on those uh, gouging or grooves inside the, the receiver. Right, and that's an area that you really ought to check before you start assembling the case together, because if you do have to get in there and polish the bore with some emery cloth or whatever, you're going to want to be able to clean that out really good so you don't have any of that grit circulating through your engine. Uh, speaking of oil pressure, uh, I have an MLG, I don't know, Mark One or whatever it is, the, the first ones that they had. And um, my oil sensor, my oil pressure sensor, uh, only works about half of the time. Most of the time, it works pretty good, but every once in a while, it'll go to 75 pounds and stay there. Um, when I was having my oil pressure problems, I put on the secondary uh, uh, feed, I put the $24.95 uh, uh, auto shop oil pressure uh, uh, instrument in my engine. And that thing works every time and it never fails and that is what I really believe in. Uh, now there's usually three to four pounds of pressure difference uh, when the electronic one is working and uh, that's just because they're sensing two different parts of the of the engine but uh, my primary one is on the forward uh, port uh, above uh, I guess it's number two cylinder um, and then the uh, electronic one is uh, on the uh, the the uh, block off plate um, that's uh, in the on the top of the engine, and that's the electronic one. That's that's how I do it. That's a good point too. Um, if you have any concerns about your EFIS uh, being all integrated. Uh, it's very easy even to hook one up temporarily and just run a short length of tubing and mount the gauge underneath the cowling where you can see it, you know, with the cowling off and standing alongside the airplane. Once you've got it all sorted out, you can always remove it if you need to. And it's not hard to do and it's not expensive. So rather than struggle with an EFIS that, that you're not sure about, back it up with a, a manual gauge and, and figure that out. A comment on the EFIS is, be careful because a lot of these require a lot of software switches to be configured correctly. And if you're looking at your oil pressure gauge, it's going to have oil pressure sender. It'll have, say, for example, so many bar of pressure gauge. And you want to make sure that your EFIS is actually calibrated to match that gauge. Otherwise, you can think you have all kinds of oil pressure problems and basically you just have a software problem. 
Right. Yeah. And if you don't have it programmed, that that is not always intuitive. You could have very low oil pressure and your scale is is set incorrectly and you think you're operating just fine. Okay, let's talk about assembling the prop hub. I know that Sonics now offers a pre-assembled prop hub on their Aero V 2.1. I don't know if that's standard or an option, but I think a lot of the early builders, we all had to assemble our cranks and our prop hubs. Let's go through the tips on, on how to do that. So, Bob, why don't you uh, walk us through that process? Okay, uh, first thing you do this when your wife is not at home. Um, because what you do is you have to uh, basically do it on the uh, kitchen counter. Uh, of course, you put the uh, the the uh, prop uh, hub in uh, for uh, what is it, 500 degrees or something for so many minutes, and the crank has been in the, the freezer for at least 24 hours. Uh, you've got all of the hot parts and the cold parts there. What we did was um, I had a big piece of masonite and I put a blanket down and then put the masonite on the top of the of the blanket so that we had a, a nice workbench. We had all of our um, all of our materials there. Two people are needed to do this and you have to work briskly to do this because things get hot and things get cold. Having said all of that, we followed the instructions carefully. My friend and I, you have to buy really heavy uh, leather gloves. Uh, the, uh, the biggest ones that you can get because you're going to be picking up hot and cold material and working with it. You also need a big hammer uh, to uh, seat it in there. Uh, but other than that and making sure that you get the, uh, the cotter, uh, uh, or not the cotter pin, uh, what am I trying to say, the uh, keyway. Woodruff key. Wood, woodruff key, that's right. The woodruff key in there. Uh, it went together uh, right the first time, and um, uh, on another note, when uh, when I went to uh, rebuild the engine, uh, I wanted to pull the prop hub off of the uh, off of the crank and just buy a new crank. It wouldn't come off. I had it in an engine shop, and they had it in a I don't know fifteen thousand pound thing. They couldn't get it pulled off, so it it goes on there and it goes on there solid. So I ended up buying a uh, a uh, assembled crank for my uh, for my rebuild, but it's uh, uh, you want to have two people there. You want to have you, you want to make sure that you get everything as hot and cold as you can get it, and it goes together uh, pretty much just the way they say. I'd like to talk about the temperature. Be careful with these ovens. You may find that you think you're heating it up, and you're not nearly as hot as you really want to be. I would try to back that up with some instant read thermometers that you could, you know, touch onto the crank or end or actually have something that's, that's set inside the, the oven as it heating up to really make sure you get the, the temperature that you need. Because if it's not hot enough, you're going to have a lot of trouble getting that prop hub on. It can seize on you halfway and then you're kind of stuck to getting it pulled back off again. Yeah, and I'll say uh, my, my wife actually helped me with mine. <laughs> But uh, uh, that's what happened the first time. I think the instructions say 450 degrees for the oven, and so I think I put it on like 450. And I put the two parts together, and it didn't seat all the way. And so I grumbled, went out to Harbor Freight, bought a bought a cheap uh, press, modified that so it would actually work. I pressed it off. We did it the second time, and this time 
I cranked the oven up as far as it would go, 550 degrees or something. And that, that made a difference. That helped. So you, you can't be too hot and you can't be too cold on the two parts. I had the same problem, Mike. I did it probably four or maybe five times, and ultimately it was the same problem. Uh, I was, I thought I was following the directions, but uh, it just wasn't getting hot enough, and it just hadn't expanded enough to slip all the way on. And same exact thing; it would get halfway on, and it would seize up, and that was it. You're done. You're not gonna, you're not gonna pound it on after that. All you can do is just stop and press it off. The original manual had the oven heat at 400 degrees. Oh wow. Yeah, I'm reading my my manual right now. It says 450, but that one's 2000. Well, 2014 was the last time. But yeah, you can't you can't make it too hot. <laughs> now I had another problem that may have contributed to my my difficulty, and that was um, I was doing it in the summertime, and it was really humid. And so I would put the crank in the freezer, and when I would pull it out, it would instantly frost over. And so now I had all that frost on the nose of the crank, and, uh, and that didn't help the prop hub slide on either. So I had, a, I had a tough time with it. All right, um, let's keep going. Uh, while we're kind of skipping around, um, so back in sort of the engine build, a couple other notes I had was that uh, I, I looked in the manual and I didn't see anything in there. But if you've ever, you know, seen engines get put together or, or done some, you, got, you know that the, the piston rings, uh, you've got more than one set of rings going around the pistons. And they all have a gap because the, the rings, you know, have to get uh, opened up enough to get around the pistons. And those gaps, those ring gaps, should not be aligned with one another. They should be offset. So if you've got three rings, they should be offset, you know, um, you know, at, at least 60 degrees uh, to one another uh, so that you don't get blow-by going by all, the, all those ring gaps. And I had a nagging feeling on at least one of my cylinders that I hadn't checked it. And I was going to leave it, and I said, no, I must have done it all right. And I finally got to me, and I pulled it off, and sure enough, I had uh, two out of the three ring gaps were, were aligned. So I spun those around so they were unaligned and put it back together, and then I, and I felt a lot better. Um, so that, that was one thing. Another, um, when you do the, the rocker arm assemblies, um, there's those, um, the, the uh the blocks, the two black blocks that uh, that hold the entire assembly and go over the two studs, um, those have a sh those studs have a shoulder on them, so they're a little fatter at the bottom and skinnier at the top. And those black uh, blocks that hold that assembly, likewise, have the shoulders cut in them. And if you put them on the wrong way, you're going to uh, tighten it down. It's going to hit the shoulder and it's going to crack. And ask me how I know that. Um, so that wasn't something that was mentioned in the in the manual, but if you look at the parts, you, you can see they only go one way. So I don't know if anybody else had any experience with those. Uh, yeah, I, I, I noticed that as well. Um, I'm not sure if that's in the rebuild manual or not, um, but that's a good point just to kind of call that out so people are aware of that. Because if it doesn't sit flush when you, you know, it, which I should have looked and I saw it wasn't flush, then I would have known something was wrong, but... You know, I thought it was going on only one way. I tightened it down. All of a sudden, I heard crack and uh, right. had to order a new part. So Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, setting the valve uh, train geometry. I think this is something that the manual, they kind of give you an approximate approach to it. They, uh, they tell you to use uh, two shims or 30 thousands a shim. I forget exactly how the manual says. But essentially, what they're doing is using 
a known head and a known rocker arm and um, and and the cam and and those type of parts. They're saying that the vast majority of engines, two shims is going to be about right to get the rocker arm geometry proper. Um, my advice is go read up on online. You know, watch a YouTube video on how to set VW valve train geometry. It's not really that hard. You can you can eyeball it. You can you know get a dial indicator and do it super precisely. But just understanding how that geometry is supposed to go will give you a little bit more confidence beyond just installing two shims and, and calling it good. And um, this is an area where the goal of setting the rocker arm geometry is to make sure that the rocker arm pushes the valve as straight up and down as possible. If you get the rocker arm where it's not really parallel when it's pushing on the valve, it's pushing sideways on the valve. And over time, that sideways push on the valve it's going to start to wear the valve guide and you're going to elongate the valve guides and that's going to cause you problems. And so just getting it 90% close is going to give you um, a whole lot better, longer lasting operation than if you just sort of, you know, haphazardly throw it all together. So go back, research it a little bit, make sure you at least uh, run through some different permeations of shim heights and verify what the proper amount of thickness is. Now, if you're doing it wrong and you're getting like a half inch of shim, well, you need to go back and study it up on a little bit. But it's going to be in that, you know, two or three shims, 30,000, 60,000, something like that. But it's worth just, you know, taking a second and doing it once or twice to make sure you understand how that geometry is supposed to sit. Let's talk about the oil cooler. So the latest versions of the manual have optional sections, you know, one for the undermount oil cooler and then a whole other section for the top mount oil cooler. So, Mike, you started with the undermount and then you converted to the top mount. Why don't you just run us through both options and give us your thoughts as to the relative merits of both of those? Yeah, I, I, I think the more, I don't know if you'd call it standard, but at the time, the more standard method seemed to be uh, to do the bottom mount oil cooler. And I figured, you know, you had that opening in the cowl. And so you had lots of air coming in there and cool your oil and, you know, cool oil is, is, is good oil. Um, yeah, I ran it th like that for a long time. And, and I think, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, one of the, the previous episodes, you know, of how to, to get our, our temperatures under control. And, and the ways that I did that is I opened up, you know, the bottom of my cowl a little bit more. And uh, one of the other things I did is I moved the oil cooler from the bottom mounted to the top mounted. So you might think that it's hotter up there, and so you'd get less uh, oil cooling performance. But, um, you know, it's, it's always a balancing act. What I found was because I could close up that uh, most, if not all, of that oil cooler opening at the bottom of the cowl, that it didn't overpressurize my cowl, and I got better cooling. And even in the dead of summer with the top-mounted oil cooler, um, granted, I'm not in Texas, but, uh, you know, hot days here in New England and flying out to Oshkosh and back, uh, I just haven't had any problems with the top-mounted oil cooler. And it's a much cleaner uh, assembly because you don't have any hoses. It just bolts right to the top and you're done. The bottom-mounted oil cooler is always kind of a pain in the butt when you've got to change your oil screen and you've got to drop that whole cooler. Uh, it's got a lot of hoses that can leak, um, you know, a lot of hoses that could potentially fail. So I've, I've been really happy with uh, changing to the top-mounted cooler. So, Carl... On the turbo, using the turbo kind of makes the decision for you. Why don't you tell us about how the turbo is set up with oil coolers? Well, the way that the, 
the way that my system is set up with the turbo, you've got the that you have two oil pumps. You have one that you know circulates oil through the engine, and then has a secondary pump that pushes oil out through the cooler or th through the turbo bearing. What I wound up doing when I first put my turbo system on was I took advantage of the oil lines and in the sense that I added a frame rail uh, cooler to the bottom of my engine and I put on a spin on oil filter to, you know, to capture the oil, filter the oil, cool the oil. And I took my capacity from, what is it, uh, 2.8 quarts of oil to almost five quarts of oil running through the system. And I have the top mount oil cooler also that comes with the kit. So I have the top mounted uh, air cool oil cooler, and then I have a frame rail, basically a, a little, it's an aluminum tube with fins on it that the oil just goes in and out of, and it's mounted to the bottom off to the side of my case half. And then I have a, you know, a uh, spin on oil filter on the firewall. So I, I have never had an oil temperature or engine oil temperature problem since day one with that. So I like, I, I kind of subscribe to the more oil is better. So the more oil, oil that I could carry, it's better for my cooling. And uh, it works really, really well. I think that's one of the reasons why I've had real good success so far with the turbo and haven't had all the problems like everybody else has talked about on the, on the Sonics Builders website. So it works pretty good. So, Well, yeah, and I think that, Mike, like you talked about, Keeping the uh, the cooling air going into the upper plenum of your cowling and then into the oil cooler there where it doesn't have to come back down into that lower chamber and, and mess up your pressure differential. That's a good way to keep the oil, keep the, the, the cylinder heads cool because you're using that cooling air most effectively. So if you think you're going to be dealing with hotter temperatures, hotter cylinder head temps, maybe hot oil like you're fine in a hot climate, or you're going to go with a turbo, either right off the bat or eventually, just going ahead and doing the top mount oil cooler is a good way to just get prepped for it. You you take full advantage of the cooling air. You cool the heads as efficiently as possible. And um, it's probably just a simpler way to go. Having said that, there is a packaging advantage to having the, the oil cooler on the bottom mount. You know, that space down there it's real easy to put that lower shroud on and hang the oil cooler right there. It's close to the, the lines are close and it just packages up the engine real nicely. So if you don't think you're going to have an oil temp problem and you're in a cooler climate and you don't plan on doing the turbo, the packaging advantage of putting it underneath might be enough to, to convince you to go that way. I sure. wish that I could um, put the top mount on mine, but the geometry of my engine and my cowling, it's it's too uh, it's too low at the top, so I can't do that. I wish I could. Uh, there's another option too. I mean, there's always everything's a trade-off. I still had the bottom mounted oil cooler on mine, but I always wanted to put a, an oil filter into this thing. And this was before Sonics came out with a revised vision revision with the turbo. But basically, you can get a stand that mounts to the same holes that the top oil cooler does. And you could run two lines from those and, and then mount a oil filter on the firewall. 
So it has a you know has an exit uh, line and a return line. It just circles right through the firewall, back through the oil cooler. It's not a true 100% oil filter, uh, but it just gave me a little bit extra peace of mind because, as we know, uh, that big screen, uh, oil screen there at the bottom of the sump really doesn't do much of anything except, you know, catch a push rod or something. Yeah, and that and that's a good point. There's really two schools of thought. You know, one says the, the VW was never designed with an oil filter in mind and the tolerances are such that it's not going to be that big of a deal. Thousands of Lycomings are flown without oil filters, and they do just fine. We only run our oil for short amounts of time, and we're really, you know, we're really changing it out frequently enough to prevent any problems. All that is probably true, and it doesn't change the fact that adding an oil filter on there is relatively cheap and easy insurance. And just screening out those little particulates, even though we are going to drain our oil and change it frequently, it just gives you a little bit cleaner, just healthier oil circulating through your engine. It's cheap. It's easy. It's probably a good idea no matter what VW that you're running. And it's certainly mandatory if you're running the turbo. So, Gary, um, that part you're mentioning, where did you get that from? Um, I actually think I ordered that through Great Plains. Uh, when I did my, my rebuild, I kind of made a hybrid, a little bit of this, a little bit of that to do what I wanted to. Um, so they had a lot of extra parts too. And one of that, that, that's, that stand basically was, was listed there as well. Um, and as I'm kind of somewhat plugging for great planes, they also have an assembly manual and DVDs. I really, really liked their assembly manual to supplement the AeroV manual. They pointed out a lot of different things, a little bit different take on things, like, for example, the Loctite 518 for the case halves. Uh, but it's very inexpensive. And I would, I really encourage everyone that I know that wants to build a, a, or rebuild an AeroV to also take a look at that manual as well and, and see what they think, you know, as far as their uh, philosophy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's part of your library to help build your own skill set so that you can work on and maintain your engine. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, one thing I'd, I'd add for the um, for the oil uh, before we get off that is that uh, if you've ever changed the oil uh, on the on the standard uh, AeroV, it makes quite a mess when you try to pull that that uh, that plug out of the bottom. So I finally got tired of that and I, I uh, tapped a second hole in the bottom of the plate, and so I've got my my oil temperature probe in one hole, and I've got a quick drain valve, a small brass quick drained out valve that I found. Uh, in the second hole. So now when I do my oil change, I just stick a little plastic tube on there. I open up the valve, drain it into a, a milk jug, and, and I'm done. That that was huge. <laughs> so that's one of those things you can do before you, you finish putting the engine together. Yeah, and I would recommend anybody do that. Um, the, the oil temperature sender that replaces the drain plug is a really handy uh, kind of cool way of adding your sender on there. But it is a pain in the butt to be pulling that thing in and out all the time. It takes the place of the drain plug, so it's harder to put a quick drain in. It's real close to the, the oil cooler if you have a bottom mount oil cooler. So better to just relocate the oil um, oil temperature sender to one of those block-off plates in the case somewhere and install a quick drain in your sump. It'll make life a whole lot easier. I actually drilled and tapped a hole right into the side bottom of my case where I knew it was going to be fully submerged all the time. And I had absolutely no problems with this whatsoever and always had great readings in my oil temperatures. 
Right. And we just tap the, the that lower block off plate on the case and we just put it there. Same thing. It's it's down in the sump and it works fine. So when I built my ROV up, I did not have an oil filter on there. I had a bottom mount cooler and I did not have a filter. I figured it probably didn't really need it. But after flying it for a while and thinking about it and weighing the pros and cons, I think it's probably better to just go ahead and put a filter of some sort somewhere out of it. And so that's what Isaac is doing on his. All right, the uh, the next thing I, I really want to talk about is the uh, secondary ignition timing. And I think this is an area that causes all kinds of grief for people, especially on uh, on first engine start. So, Bob, why don't you talk about the secondary ignition? Just real quick summary, what it is and how you set it and how you know if it's right or wrong. Well, to tell you the truth, mine has never been what I would call right. Um, it gets really, really close. I... Uh, uh, you know, measured the uh, prop hub and and uh, put the marks on there. Uh, I used the timing light to put it to to set it. Um, actually, right now um, it's uh, the next uh, oil change, which is coming up here in about seven or eight hours. I'll be uh, timing it again. Uh, it's. I have always had a problem getting it set. Having said that, it still runs good. Um, but I'll tell you, um, when uh, Charlie Radford and I flew down to uh, 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 Crossville, his coils failed on him down at Crossville. And we tried to uh, uh, fix it down there, uh, but we never got it fixed. And we decided to fly back uh uh, just on mags. And it turns out that uh, not only did his engine run cooler just flying on the mags, uh, he got better gas mileage. So I started doing that, and now I use my secondary ignition to start my engine. I take off with it. After I get up to pattern altitude, I turn it off. My cylinder head temperatures immediately go down by about 25 to 30 degrees and maybe as much as 50 degrees depending on the temperature and my um, my mileage goes up by about oh two or three tenths an hour so right now I don't fly with my secondary ignition I just fly with the with the mags and um, I'm very happy with that um, but uh, Timing the, uh, I've always had difficulty timing my uh, secondary ignition. Uh, right now it's, it's running fine, but uh, the, the, it runs better with just the mags. And I believe what that is, is that the flame propagation within the cylinder, those cylinders were designed for a single plug. And maybe that's where you're getting better and cooler combustion. I don't know. Um, but... Anyway, that's my experience. Okay. Mike, uh, what's, uh, what's your take on that? Well, when back when my couple things, back when my engine was running uh, hot and I was still trying to, uh, you know, to tackle that, uh, retarding the secondary uh, timing definitely made an improvement. Uh, I know a lot of times people are, are doing their mag check on the ground and saying, you know, gee, I, you know, I'm looking for that, uh, you know, no more than 50 RPM uh, drop. 
but I, I don't find that that works on the ground at the, the speeds that we're, that we're revving the engine up to on a check. It, it really only makes a difference at altitude. So I, I only check the, the difference in, in RPM when I'm in flight in cruise uh, to see if they look like they're you know reasonably close. But likewise, I don't run my secondary. Once I take off and I'm established, uh, I turn off the secondary mainly because uh, all the electronics in the in our in our airplanes these days, uh, you know, the 20 amp uh, alternator is just not uh, is still not adequate. And so, uh, to keep my charging and my battery charged, I turned off the secondary ignition, so I'm not running the uh, running the coils. Uh, and it runs great, runs just fine on on just the mags alone. Yeah, the coils do take uh, three or four amps just to just to keep them running. I think the the big advantage of the of the electronic ignition, the the secondary ignition system, is that it, it's independent of prop RPM. Unlike our primaries that require that magnet on the flywheel to zip by the the ignition module and generate the spark, that requires a certain minimum RPM to generate a, a an intense enough magnetic effect to to fire the plug. The coil doesn't need that. You charge it up using the battery, and then as soon as you trigger it, it fires that plug. And so it makes it really, really simple to start the engine because, again, it's independent of that. Having said that, though, the timing can be set too far advanced, can be set too far retarded. And if it doesn't match the fixed timing magnetron, that 28 degrees, you know, fixed timing, um, one or the other is going to fire. So if you if you set it up really really advanced, then the secondary ignition is going to fire that cylinder before the fixed timing comes around. And so you're going to have all the the inefficiencies of a a spark that is starting off center in that spark plug and uh, and kind of burning kind of in a in a sideways fashion. It's going to be really advanced, um, and you're going to get that additional you know high CHTs and things like that. Or if it's really retarded, then by the time that that second, secondary fires, the primary has already come around and fired and the cylinder is already doing its thing. And so it's kind of a wasted spark in the middle of the burning of it. So if they're not exactly right, there's really no downside to just turning off one or the other and running on one ignition. So I guess really what I'm, what I'm trying to say is if you get the secondary ignition set more or less to where it's firing at the same time as the fixed ignition, the primary ignition, then you'll still get good advantage on starting. Ideally, they're firing at exactly the same time, and so you get maybe a little bit better efficiency. But if you don't get it exactly right, and you do turn that off, that makes a great diagnostic tool. If, if the engine runs better when you turn that secondary ignition off, well, that's a really good indication that, you know, that, that advance needs to be uh, retarded a little bit. It's probably running too hot and, and it's just not running right. So I think everybody has this, this objection early on to turning off one side or the other and seeing what happens. And I'd encourage anybody to go out there and experiment with it, take some notes, and don't worry so much about it. The engine's not going to quit when you turn one side or the other off. Yeah, and I know that, unfortunately, it's it's difficult to, to set that secondary timing, um, that that uh, magnet cap. Uh, you know, when you un- when you loosen the, the hex head uh, screw that holds that in place, that that wiggles back and forth. In fact, it wiggles so much that it'll make contact with the uh, with the triggers. The black triggers on on either side, so I actually carry in my toolkit a, a piece of cardboard that's long enough to wrap around that, so that uh, so that it it 
stands the uh, that trigger cap, that magnet cap off from the triggers, you know, by the thickness of the cardboard uh, when I rotate it and set it. So I think that's a kind of flaw in that system is that that whole system back there is just too loose. Um, you've really got to be careful with it when you're setting it, which means that you don't want to you don't want to mess with it too much uh, because it's just so difficult to use. So what I would advise a new builder, set it per the manual. Um, you can check it with a timing light. Um, you can experiment with it, you know, in the hangar and see where it's firing and calculate that into a, um, a degrees before top dead center. You can do all that kind of stuff. But if you get it more or less right, get the engine started where it's not firing, you know, because with a bad wiring, it's 180 degrees out or something crazy like that. Just get it where it's more or less right. And then get in the air and and turn that thing off to isolate just the primary. You know the primary is going to be running correctly. And then just adjust as you do your flight testing. You can you can turn it a little bit at a time until you kind of sneak up on where that thing is set the best. And then if you're in a case where, you know, you want to save the power and you don't need it, don't feel bad about turning that thing off and saving some juice. Okay, uh, Mike, what, what else is left on your list of potential gotchas during the build? There's always just the little things. Um, you know, if, you, if you've got your cylinder head temperature probes, um, you know, on the, screwed into the head as opposed to going underneath the, uh, the spark plugs, um, the, what I did is I, I pre-drilled a little hole and then I took a self-tapping uh, sheet metal screw and that's what I screwed into the head. Well, unfortunately, there was still a lot of torque when I was trying to screw that, that screw in and I snapped off more than one threaded uh, fastener in the head and had to drill another hole and put another fastener in. And then over time, those things, um, you know, heat up and they get weak and they snap again. So I would just say for those, those probes, if you're drilling the hole, go ahead and actually tap it and put in a good, uh, a good steel fastener, uh, rather than trying to use a sheet metal screw. Um, you'll, you'll have a lot easier time, uh, later on. Um, one of the other things that we didn't mention about the heads that going through my notes, I re- recall is that, you know, I don't know if everybody else has run into it, but it just seems like eventually when you work your spark plugs in and out, you're going to strip the, you're going to strip the spark plug holes in the heads. And I went for a long time without that. And then last year doing my annual, sure enough, the very last one that I went to take out, uh, as careful as I was, it stripped. And so at that point I just decided to, to take all eight holes and put time certs in. Um, I did that. I have the tool. I loan it out to people. Uh, works great. And so now I, I kind of recommend that just go ahead and do it before you, when you're initially building your, your engine, uh, save yourself the trouble later on. I would second that too. And I, I do, I prefer the time certs over the helicoils. The time certs are much more expensive, but I think it makes a much stronger bond um, than the helicoils do. Yeah, and they give you a nice, nice mating surface for the uh, for the spark plugs to, to sit on. But it's a pricey tool. It is, but I have it. Anybody can use it. <laughs> I think I, I think I've loaned it out a half dozen times already. So. Maybe you could put a uh, uh, a link to a video on that, so we could show what that tool is and how it works and all that. Yeah, and I think uh, on I think on my kit log site I have the I have the video links on there. Um, 
I'm anal retentive enough to put everything on my kit log site. So almost everything I've done on my plane <laughs> since I started building it is on my kit log site. Okay. And I'll put a link to your kit log uh, in the show notes, Mike. All right. Okay. What else, Mike? What else is on your list? Uh, well, I, I, I really like having, uh, my engine monitors on all four cylinders. I know some people, you know, have it on, on two, but, you know, having four, uh, CHT, uh, you know, cylinder head temperature probes and, and EGTs just makes troubleshooting a lot easier. You know, you can see the trends, you can see where the issue is and nail it down right away. Um, so that's something I would certainly, certainly recommend. Um, another minor thing is when you put the uh, the air filter on on the uh, on the aero uh, injector, if that's what you're using, um, those those bolts will actually back out from all the vibration. And I had mine fall off in, in my cowl, so I actually safety wire. I have a you know uh, the drilled head uh, bolts holding that on, and and uh, and I safety wire. One of the few things I have safety wired in the airplane. Yeah, and on that note, um, I know that Sonics uh, sells the the air filter assembly. It's a nice red anodized unit. It looks good on the engine. But I'm a big fan of K&N, and I think uh, just slapping a good large diameter K&N filter right on the aero injector is the way to go. I do that on my Jabru. I'm going to do it on uh, on, on Isaac's Aero V. I think that makes a, a just an easy, and you just secure it with a hose clamp. Yeah, and I've got that on mine, and I, I could not make that that uh, K&N filter fit in my cowl. So if you look at my cowl, I've got a blister on the bottom. I just cut the cut the fiberglass, made a little blister to make enough room for it, and nobody even notices. I actually used a K&N filter too, but I actually fabricated an air box um, that goes up uh, on my firewall very close to the side of the cowl and put a NACA vent in there. And I actually have cold air going to my the RV that I did rather than the hot air inside the cowling. Yeah, and uh, feeding the engine cold air, you know, will increase the density of the air charge, and that will give you more power. A lot of times, that will also have a nice effect on your CHDs. So we won't get into cold air uh, induction, but just um, it may be something to think about as a as a separate thought down the road, a way to maybe eke out a little bit more power and maybe. A uh, way to tune uh, how your engine is running. And the only the only last point I have as a major item was when uh, doing the flywheel shims uh, at the back of the engine, and uh, you know I tried the feeler gauge and I just couldn't get it to work. So I did a lot of trial and error with the the different shims, and I had it dialed in. It was right at point zero zero four, just like it was supposed to be, and I put the whole engine together. Uh, put the RTV on uh, on the flywheel assembly, tighten everything down, and then measured it again. And I was I was over limits, and I could not figure it out. And so when I went back and redid it, the best I can figure, and this seems to have worked every time, is when you're dry fitting all that stuff, you don't have any RTV going on there. When you go and actually put it together, you have some RTV there, so there's some extra thickness. So instead of the .004 that, that the manual says to shoot for, I was shooting for .003 when everything was being fit together dry. So that when you put the RTV on there and then cranked it down, that got me closer to that .004. So every, every little thing that you do, you've got to think of how thick it is. It doesn't seem thick to us, but, but you know, .001 you know, makes a difference. Jeff, one other comment I'd have, too, is while you're assembling the Aero-V, 
and you've got the case together but not yet uh, put the heads on the cylinders, it's a good time to go ahead and start to index your prop flange with top dead center on a couple of different cylinders. Let's say, for example, I believe the firing order is 1, 4, 3, and 2. Well, if you take the left rear cylinder number 1 and bring that up to top dead center, because you can visually see it easily, uh, get that top dead center, then scribe a mark on your propeller flange that coincides with the top seam of the case halves. So that way you know at least you've got a, a top dead center there on that, on that cylinder. I would then go so far as to rotate it 180 degrees, look at cylinder number 4, get that top dead center, make another scribe there. So now you've got two. So as, for example, you're doing your time or your valve uh, clearance adjustments. It's easier to uh, find whichever cylinder you want as the valves start to get loose on, on both the intake and exhaust. You can bring that index on the prop flange right up to the, the center of the case seams. And you know your top dead center without having to worry about pulling spark plugs and sticking things down in there and trying to make sure you really are at top dead center. Uh, the second thing to go along with those two diamond marks, those two index marks, might be to make one 28 degrees before top dead center, say like 28 degrees before number cylinder one. So you'd actually have three marks. And so that way, if you do have to do further ignition timing adjustments, it also gives you a chance to uh, uh, just use those index marks a little bit more efficiently without, like I said, having to stick everything down through there and, and causing yourself extra grief. Yeah, that's a good point because you really need to have a, a good reference. And the only way to get that without some sort of permanent mark on the crank or the flywheel is, like you say, to pull a spark plug out and stuff something down inside there to, to visually confirm that, that the cylinder is at top dead center. And that, and that becomes a problem when you are doing your valve clearance repeatedly. So I think that's a good idea. It'll just make it simpler all the way around. Yeah, I find it saves me a lot of time when I do my valve adjustments. Yeah, well, that's a good tip. Yeah, thanks for that. Well, I just have uh, one area that I want to talk about, and that's um, the magnetrons themselves. So this is something I kind of learned the hard way. I wanted to use a key-style switch just, just because that's what I wanted. Um, I don't recommend that on the AeroV. It's a pain in the butt to do that. And the easiest solution is to take the two kill wires for the magnetron, tie them together to the same terminal, and put them both on like the right or the left on your key switch. And then run the power wire uh, to your electronic ignition and put that on the other side. So you have a right and a left. And that seems to make perfect sense, except it doesn't work that way. If you tie the two kill wires together from your top and bottom magnetron, they will ground each other out through those kill wires and they will, they will not work properly. So save yourself the trouble and just follow the way Sonics recommends it in the install manual or even in the plans. Just put a switch for your electronic ignition, a separate switch with a dual pole switch for, you know, one pole for the top and one pole for the bottom, um, as your, your mag switch. And that'll just make it really easy. It's easy to isolate them, you know, turn them on and off, and you won't have any problem grounding mags out through a common kill wire. Yeah, Jeff, I that's I have mine tied through a key switch, a start switch on the electronic side, and then my magnetrons tied to a toggle switch that I can double pull switch that I can flip on and off. So it works really well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a good way to do it, too. The The only way you can make that key switch work directly with the magnetrons is to install some sort of dual-pole relay, and the key just controls the relay that controls the magnetrons. And that's just added complexity. It's just a lot easier just to put a toggle switch on there for your mags. 
Exactly. Keep it simple. All right. So um, before we wrap all this up, I just want to briefly talk about some operational things and then we'll kind of put some final thoughts and, and close the topic out. So we have a whole episode on on cooling. So if anybody you know, wants to go back and re-listen to that, you know, go back to the archives. It's one of the early episodes we did. Uh, Mike, uh, you were really helpful in kind of running us through all the concerns on cooling. But I do want to just hit a couple of highlights. And that is you got to make sure that you are bringing air efficiently into the into the engine, into that upper plenum, uh, and that you have a good difference in pressure. We talked about the oil cooler inlet and um, and not making that overly large because you'll you'll ruin that pressure differential between your upper plenum and your lower plenum. But in a very general sense, this is something that is going to affect your engine. It's going to be hard to get the, the carburetor tuned if your cooling is, is really off. It's going to be hard to note whether you're, you know, you have a, an oil temperature problem or you have just a really hot running engine and high CHDs. It's going to have a lot of different things that are going to, it's going to be very difficult to kind of sort all that out. So spend some time and make sure that you set yourself up for success and, and use all those tips we talk about in the cooling episode and make sure that your engine has the best chance at cooling efficiently. And it will have all those side benefits of, you know, keeping your oil cool, keeping the, your carb tuning nice and simple. So spend some time and make sure your engine cooling is done right. Your initial carb tuning, this is an, you know, we have another episode on carb tuning and definitely go listen to that. But the key thing here is, Start your engine up and do the minimum amount that you need to be able to get it to where it's safe to go fly. You don't want to cook your engine on the ground when you're trying to get that carb just perfectly tuned. You will create problems for yourself if you fixate on that. You want to get it where it's tuned pretty good per the manual, maybe a little bit on the rich side, and then don't be afraid to lean it out a little bit if you need to on on initial climb out. And that's a whole lot better. Get it to where it's safe. And then go fly it, and you will fine-tune it in the air. And, and this is a process. You're going to fine-tune your mixture setting over the next half dozen or dozen flights. So it's not a one-time set it and forget it. You're going to sneak up on it. So don't obsess on the front end. Get it where it's safe, and then go fly it and start that in-flight fine-tuning. Okay, any other uh, thoughts on sort of the early hours of operation or anything like that? Anything that we, we think that um, people ought to be uh, mindful of? Yeah, I would say, you know, we all know that engines are going to run hot when you're breaking them in. That's You're breaking it in. It's going to run hot. But if it goes on for too long, then you've got to suspect some other issues with the secondary timing, uh, some of these other things that we've talked about. I went way too long with the number two ne- needle and the uh, aero injector, just not believing, you know, just kept thinking that, oh, it's running hot. Oh, I just have to do this. I just have to do that. And I, I ended up burning a couple of valves. If I had kind of, you know, really looked at everything early on and said, look, something's got to change here. And uh, I eventually changed to a number 2.5 needle. And within one or two tweaks, I haven't had to change anything in the last four years. Uh, so believe your numbers. And if things are running hot for too long, you've got to address it right away or you're going to end up burning up your valves. I think a lot of people fail to realize how much cooling effect fuel really can provide. Mm-hmm. So if, if don't always think that your cylinders are hot just because of the cow flow. 
really go back and check that car, richen it up, and just to try it, you might be surprised you know, the difference just with a, a mixture change. Yeah, I, I was monitoring my fuel flow, and, and in all that time I had the high temperatures, I was getting like two and a half gallons uh, per hour uh, in flight. So that's just way too lean. Yeah, uh, you beat me. My best is like 3.1, but yeah, that's so, 10,000 feet. So I don't even know how it flew with that, with those yeah. little numbers, but but it, it, it burned up the valve. So The best I've ever done is 4.5. I must be rich, but the exhaust is uh, nice uh, light gray. I tend to run mine a little bit rich, too. You can always lean it out in flight, but it's really hard to make it richer when you need to. So I tend to set it a little rich, and then I just lean cautiously, I guess. I probably could do better. You know, once it's running good, I hate to mess with it. I average 4.5 now in cruise, so that seems to be a pretty good number. Well, I, I feel better now. I found yeah. 4.5 was the power side for me, and 3.5 was the economy side. Well, on the turbo... I cruise about seven, seven gallons an hour, and takeoff is around nine. Yeah, and, and those are numbers very similar to what you're going to see in a Jabiru. And, I mean, the bottom line is it takes gas to make the power, so make sure you feed it enough. Exactly. All right, so the, the last thing and kind of the operating um, limits type thing is let's just talk about how hard, and I guess I need the little air quotes around how hard can you run the engine? What's abusing it? What's babying it? Let's just talk about when we talk about babying the engine or just, you know, break it in or run it hard. What are we really talking about? So, Gary, why don't you just walk us through that? Well, I agree. I mean, I could get the published 150 miles an hour true airspeed uh, at full throttle uh, on the power side of my mixture setting. Uh, but, you know, it makes a lot of racket, you know, as well as additional vibration. Um, I've always thought perhaps that I, I preferred the sound, the feel, the fuel economy running lean of peak. And again, that for me at my altitude would typically be about 3.5 gallons per hour at around the 30, 50 RPMs. Uh, I think that Mike had mentioned, too, I thought it was a great RPM setting. And I would consistently average 130 miles per hour uh, true airspeed. So, sure, I could get the extra 20 if I was flogging it and burning a lot more fuel. But I looked at my endurance and range uh, on my, my economy cruise setting around 3.5, as well as just the feel of it. That was always just a sweet spot for me for typical flying. Okay. And, uh, and Mike, um, again, air quotes around how hard. But, but how hard do you run your engine? What do you like to do? Well, I... My my max RPMs never seem to be quite as much as, as other people's. My my max RPM in, in uh, level flight with uh, the engine wide open is, is like 3150 with the Sensenic prop on it. And I know other people get more than that. But, um, you know, if I'm running at wide open throttle like that, 3150 level uh, flight, um, I'm getting, I've got mine calibrated in knots, but I'm, I'm getting 105 knots. I can throttle back uh, to about 2950 RPMs, and my fuel flow goes way down, and I'm still flying at 95 knots is over 100 miles an hour. So the only time I sort of watch my numbers is when I'm doing aerobatics and, you know, you're on a downline or something, and and you do have to watch the throttle that if you don't pull the throttle back, all of a sudden you're going to see it, you know, going up 37, 38, you know, 100 RPM if you're not watching it. But, you know, of course, the published maximum RPM is 4,000. I don't know if anybody actually runs the numbers up that high. Okay, Bob, how do you like to operate yours? 
I usually uh, uh, run it about 3050 to 3100, depending on the weight and temperature. Uh, and that's where I get my, you know, 4.5, 4.8 gallons an hour. Um, if I'm just fooling around in the sky, I'll throttle back to 2950, and I'm getting about 100 miles an hour. But at, at 3050, I'm getting about 115 to 118 miles an hour. Uh, it it lopes around good. It seems like that's its sweet spot. So it, it sounds good that uh, that other people are finding that number too. Um, I can I can run mine up to uh, 3,400 RPM, uh, wide open throttle, uh, easy. Yeah, but that you know it takes a little bit of time to wind up. When I take off, by the time I'm at the end of the runway, I'm probably at 3,300 RPM because it takes a while. I've got the standard Cincinnati prop, which is what a 5444 or whatever it is. I it's the standard prop, so it takes a little bit time to wind up, but uh, It'll wind up, and then about the time that I'm switching over to just the mags, I'm throttling back, and uh, you know it goes down, and everything flies just fine. Okay, and, and Carl, your turbo is going to be a bit different, but but give us a feel for how hard you run your engine. What do you normally do? Well, on takeoff, I go full throttle, and that could be up to 40 inches of manifold pressure, which is pushing up, push about. I don't know, 30, between 33 and 3,400 RPM on takeoff. And that gets me out pretty fast. I can climb pretty well. I'm running an Edge Sturba prop, but it's a 5654. And I don't have any problem making RPM with it on the ground or in the air. Um, as far as my cruise, if I'm out trying to keep up, then I'll run about 35 inches of manifold pressure, which is, and that'll get me about 3,100 RPM. I'll, hit about 130 miles an hour and then if i just want to tootle along and try to save a little bit of gas then i'll i'll pull it back between you know 31 to 33 inches of manifold pressure which brings my speed down to about 115 miles an hour and then brings me down to around just under 3000 rpm so that's normally kind of where i that's between 32 and 33 is kind of where it really likes to cruise. But, boy, you, you can you can get it going like a scalded dog on takeoff, though. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Carl, I guess just transitioning into just keeping an eye on your engine and maintenance, are there anything turbo-specific that kind of come to mind that you keep an eye on or, or that you do as recurring maintenance? The biggest thing for me, I make sure of on the turbo side for me is when I, you know, to make sure when you taxi back that you idle for at least three minutes. So my taxi time back from my landing to my hangar is roughly about two and a half minutes, but then I'll sit and stop and and, uh, let it go for another couple of minutes. And then when I shut down and get it into the hangar, I have a, a fan I put up underneath the cowling to kind of blow up in there to kind of help cool it off to keep the temperature down. Reoccurring maintenance is just keep the oils clean. Make sure you're on top of looking for any loose bolts, nuts, or anything in the, in the exhaust system. Because uh, I have had, I have lost the turbo one time in flight due to the exhaust flange bolts backing out. Uh, which was kind of a little of an eerie feeling because I went from, you know, having 
35 inches of manifold pressure, and then it just dropped to a regularly aspirated engine, which is quite a difference in performance. So that's really the, about the biggest maintenance issue on the turbo. So just making sure everything is tight and secured and that you're getting every bit of your exhaust going through the turbo so it stays spooled up. So Okay. All right, so guys, um, as far as the same question, um, recurring maintenance or things you just like to keep an eye on to, to make sure that it's healthy, what comes to your mind? I think for me, the biggest thing is, I, I don't know about you guys, but I do an oil analysis every time I do an oil change. And <clears throat> when I had the problem with the Nicosil cylinders, um, mushrooming them up at the top, that was the only way that I knew something was wrong was I started looking at the oil analysis and seeing all this aluminum and nickel showing up. And so that was my first clue to start looking for something. And then I said, okay, what's made of aluminum and what's made of nickel uh, in the engine? And that's, of course, pointed right to the Nicosil cylinders. And so um, I, I get that done every time. I get one of the cheaper uh, one of the cheaper uh, oil analysis kits. I think it cost me uh like $15 on sporties or something like that and then then the cost of postage to send it in and um I, i'm i'm sold on that it's a really good way to to look at what's going on in your engine yeah and it will definitely uh you know kind of get your attention uh, and and set you on the hunt if something is showing itself to be abnormally high and just, I guess, a, a, a comment. We've talked about the Nicosil cylinders a little bit at the beginning. We've talked about it in other episodes. But that was a, a thing that Sonics offered for a while as an option. And uh, it had a long track record of, of working pretty well in other engines or other applications like dune buggies and things like that. What we found is that in aviation use, just the, the duty that we put on our engines, just the Nicosils were just not up to the task of holding up. And I think everybody has had very similar experience with them. They just don't hold up. They work fine for a while, but eventually they they have problems. And Sonics recognized that, discontinued them, and has advised people to uh, to revert back to the the forged steel cylinders. Yep, and I haven't had any trouble since. Um, and they were Sonics was kind enough to give me a you know a pretty good discount on the new cylinders when that happened. Okay, Gary. I'm just kind of a hands-on person. I find that with a vibration, we get we get a lot of things that start to loosen up that you wouldn't expect. For some reason, I frequently had the uh, silicone boops go into the intakes, which seemed to get a little bit loose, and I'd have to go back and retighten those. Some people go so far as to safety wire those too. So I don't know if it's you know stretching of the worm screw clamps or as a change in the density of the silicone or combinations. But check those; those will typically loosen up. Another problem I found, too, is on the ignition coils at the top where the little brass screws go to uh, hold all the, the terminals that come in and feed into the ignitions. Sometimes those little brass screws can start to, to loosen on you. You can't really tell by looking at it. But if you put your hands down there and just try to wiggle the terminals a little bit, you'll instantly find if, if they've gotten a little bit loose to you. Go around, too, and also check. Uh, I found that my uh, ignition leads uh, were pretty close uh, to the exhaust pipes. And sometimes as things rotate a little bit, I actually had one lead that burned through. And it was a pretty easy fix because I, I had the four CHTs and EGTs as well. And it was pretty easy to start to identify where some of the problems might start to creep up uh, between one cylinder or a bank of cylinders. And you can easily tie them into either to the ignition coil side or, or the magneto side just by having all those sensors on there noting which ones are bad. Yeah, that's good advice on um, on checking those uh, those terminals. Okay, so... 
the the last question I want to go over is let's just talk about warning signs. So the types of things that might give you an indication that something is wrong and you might need to, to dig further into your engine or it might be time for some repair or possibly to open it up and, and overhaul it. So, Mike, talk about um, some of those signs that you observed. You, know, you talked about your oil analysis results, but what else might you observe that would cause you to open up your engine and, and dig into it? And, and, Bob, I'll ask you the same thing next. Well, uh, rising temperatures certainly, uh, you know, got to take a look at especially in a in a seasoned engine if things are starting to go up you know why are they going up the oil analysis uh, is a big thing um you know and i found the the problem with my stator when all of a sudden my electrical numbers started bouncing around uh, at the end of a flight and so of course i thought that was just a bad connection and i checked all the connections everything was good and so then i started you know turning the prop and then i found the, the other issues so um you know, I think that's why I like having uh, having engine monitors uh, on all four cylinders. It's just uh, it really gives it gives you not only a trend, but it gives you the, the best uh, way to start to see that there's something going on. Okay, all right, good. And, and Bob, what what are the warning signs that you would pick up on that would tell you need something's up and you need to dig in? Well, when I uh, had to rebuild, the oil pressure and the oil the oil pressure was going down and the oil temperatures going up at the same time on the same flight. And I said, I made an immediate turn back and that's when I decided I needed to rebuild. The other thing that happened to me one time is when you change the oil and you adjust the valves, of course you have to put in uh, the new uh, valve cover uh, gasket. And one time I took off, I was heading down to Miami County and you know where that is. And I'm, this was right after an oil change and I'm looking at my oil pressure of my every 30 second scan and oil pressure started to drop and I said that's interesting and I made an immediate turn to Gardner what had happened was the the uh, the gasket had rolled on me and I didn't know that and the only way you know that is if you uh, uh, your oil pressure starts to go down and it's you know it's bleeding oil out of the thing. Well, by the time I landed at Gardner and stopped the engine, the oil pressure had gone down to about eight pounds, and I had lost two quarts of oil in about 15 minutes. Um, the guys at, at Gardner got my uh, got me some oil and we put it down there. So you have to keep your your uh, instrument scan going at all times, or you'll fry an engine. I was close to in the airfield, everything worked out, uh, and it worked out okay. So watch your oil temperatures, watch your oil pressure, and uh, and the oil analysis is very good too. Um, I've done that, um, but uh, that's, uh, that's what I do. Okay, all right, good. Uh, Carl, any thoughts on, uh, on things to, to give you warning signs that something's up? Well, I mean, a lot of it's... You know, you get a, you get to basically know the and feel get a good feel for how your engine performs um, through trial and error. But you get to know how it runs and the nuances of what it likes and doesn't like, and you should be very aware of it. And when something doesn't feel right when you're in flight, you know, if you get loss of oil pressure, you know, things of that nature, then you need to sit down right away and investigate it. But some of the more you know, pre-flight things, 
you know, is, is twisting, you know, turning your prop through, making sure that you feel compression every time, um, being aware of any particular kind of noise or sounds that you hear when you do turn the prop through on the ground. That's a good indicator uh, of look to look a little bit deeper, you know, and then like the, the monitoring all four cylinders, your CHTs and your EGTs, that's probably one of the most useful tools that you have in flight because you can actually see it and isolate it down to a cylinder, you know, where, and it gives you a, like a map where you need to look and then just, you know, list, just list looking and constantly looking and constantly listening. So. Yeah. And I like that comment about checking the compression by pulling the prop through on the ground. I think that's a good indication before every flight, just to make sure that one cylinder isn't abnormally soft and it'll jump right out at you. They'll all be about the same. And if you have a soft cylinder, you'll know it before you'll see it on your engine monitor when you, when you pull that prop through. When we flew back from rec law this last summer, when I got back, I had no, no visual indication all the way back in that six hour flight from rec law all the way back to Colorado Springs that I had any issue. And the only way that I found that I had a burnt, uh, exhaust valve seat was when I pulled that through and I would went through and pulled it through and I went one, two, three and gone. Yeah. And that was a good, that was a, a good indicator that I needed to look at something deeper and then wound up doing a compression test and finding that and having to pull the head and, you know, getting it fixed. So, yeah. Yep. And then just keeping an eye on your valves. You know, if one valve is, is changing more than the others, you know, there, there's an indication that something's going on. Valve guide might be going bad. You might be burning a seat. Uh, you might be having some, some stress on the valve itself. All right. Well, I think that probably runs down our list from uh, from prepping and building and operating. I think probably my summary thoughts on this is um, it is a completely doable project for a first-time builder, but you can't approach it haphazardly or with a cavalier attitude. You need to do your due diligence. You need to educate yourself and collect the appropriate tools and techniques to do this stuff. And it's not hard, but it just requires a little bit of dedication to uh, to just to go through and prep for it. Follow the manual. Listen to the people that have been successful. And Sonics has been doing this successfully for years. So they put a lot of time and thought into how they did their manual and video. So use that. And if you have a question... Maybe a, a call back to the factory to discuss it in more detail might put your mind at ease as to why they recommend what they do. And then lastly, don't get in a rush. Take your time. Be thorough in how you do things. Don't think that you can put something together one time, bolt it up, and that it will just automatically be perfect. It might be, but it's on you to ensure that it is. And if something's not right, then listen to that little voice in the back of your head and Open it back up and, and have a look and make sure it's right. And when everything comes together perfectly, it'll just feel right. You, you won't have those binding things or you won't have a, a squeak or a weird conflict. And just make sure you get that the first time. So I don't know if you guys have any final thoughts. Let's, uh, let's roll those out. And then uh, I think we're going to put this episode to rest. I would say biggest piece of advice that I'd give would be if you rush through it, you will be wrong. Yeah. That's pretty much a given. You know, patience, taking your time and being patience will help guarantee a successful build. Read everything twice and watch the video three times. 
I always say the best thing about experimental airplanes and engines is that you're your own mechanic, and the worst thing about it is that you're your own mechanic. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I will say that you know that the engine is so basic, which which it's it's really nice. If it's going to be the first thing that you're going to build like this, the 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 VW the Aero V is a great one. I mean, I the toolkit that I carry in my airplane when I travel. Um, you know, it's about a foot long and uh, eight inches wide and four inches deep. I can almost rebuild that engine with everything in that, in that bag. It's, it's that, you know, basic of an engine. Here's, here is a tip on installing the engine in the airframe. And we did this on my rebuild. Assemble your engine completely. Make sure everything fits. Then take off the accessory uh, plate You'll have to take off the starter to do that. You mount the accessory plate onto the engine mount. That's lightweight, and you, you can get it all aligned and bolted in and everything. Then you take the engine that's left over. Two people, it's light enough and, and less awkward. Two people can easily lift it up, put it on the mating uh, bolts that bolt the uh, the case to the engine mount, uh, there's a uh, one bolt screws into a threaded piece that's on the uh, case. You put that in finger tight, the other guy puts in his finger tight, and you've got the engine mounted on the accessory case. It's much, much easier than taking the uh, engine and using a hoist and trying to get it on the, uh, uh, get it on the, uh, uh, the engine uh, mount. Uh, that's on the airframe much much easier yeah i think that's a good tip also i'd agree with that all right guys well hey um thanks for sticking this out this has been a long episode but a lot of good information i think that um, these are the kind of things that you know that we all learn the hard way so it's great that we can pull them all together and share this with people that are just starting out we can arm them with this information and and get them going on the right path and they should have good long reliable service out of their engines and then, uh, you know, they'll be confident on how to, uh, how to operate them and how to assess if uh, maybe they need to look a little deeper. So I think that um, that's the goal is to, to try to improve the overall experience for ROV builders out there. So I appreciate your input, guys. For everybody else, you can find us on the web at sonicsflight.com. You can get the show notes at sonicsflight.com slash 37. Oh, and you can subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcast, uh, iTunes, Google Play, or, or your favorite podcast app. Send us an email at feedback at sonicsflight.com and let us know if you have a topic that uh, is on your mind or you have a, a good suggestion for a guest. So once again, Mike and Bob and Carl, thanks for coming and, and doing this and uh, look forward to seeing you guys real soon here. Have a good night. We'll see you later. All right, guys. Good night. We'll see you soon, Jeff. Bye-bye. All right. It's been a pleasure. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Flight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command. Oh, that's good. Hey, just just a sec. Uh, 
Gary, I think it might be your mic. I'm hearing a lot of like banging and clattering going on in the background. No, uh, that would be Phoenix. my mic. Oh, Carl. Okay. I, had, I had mine on mute, buddy. Uh, well, you know, you said a bathroom run, so I thought perhaps, you know, that's what you were doing. <laughs> no, that'll sound Heck. completely different. Does he use wrenches in the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> well, Carl doesn't like to waste any time. He's probably uh, working on an install as we speak. I am actually putting oil lines on my Cessna. the terminals on the regulator itself can get a little bit of dogs going nuts over here is that going in the blue I guess those are just critters. <laughs> Hang on a second. It's probably his wife telling us to get off the internet. <laughs> He'll be spending some quality time in the editing booth. Must be an RP builder showed up at the front door. Somebody must have dropped the steak on the floor. <laughs> if we hear two gunshots, we'll. <laughs> well, what do we want to say about him while he's gone? <laughs> he's gone to the dog. Yeah, he's a good guy. Hey, guys, are you still there? Yeah, we're still here. Oh, sorry about that. My dogs just absolutely decided to fight it out. Yeah, we could tell. They were not giving up either. (laughs) I don't know who won, but it was exciting. Just probably trim that part. You're not going to leave that uh, the dog fight on the... Yeah, yeah, the full extended dog fight edition. (laughs) (laughs) This is what happens when you disagree on what RPM to run your your (laughs) engine at. It turns nasty.